So, Berto, do you suffer from health anxiety? W- w- have you heard that I do? do Should you, I get that checked out? Do you suffer from it? Yeah. How so? Well, uh, throughout the years, I've had um, what I would call a bit of a hypochondriac tendencies. And when I feel like something might be wrong, I get really anxious and it can make, make me feel worse. Uh, and I've also had uh, actual panic attack before and I've had anxiety. And recently I had a, a very scary uh, case of this. Yeah. Yeah. And our people might remember you discussing the floss incident. The floss incident, where yes. You, where you thought you had pooped out a tapeworm, a when, tapeworm in, when in yes. fact you just put floss in the toilet. <laughs> the night before. <laughs> and uh, so, yeah. So <sighs> I, I, let's get into your more recent event with health anxiety and panic. Uh, but first, let's do a little intro here. Let's do it. So... Uh, I put out an ask on Facebook for people to provide their own stories of health anxiety. And I thought I might get one or two responses. I got a lot of responses. Oh, really? For example, anonymous patron, she writes, I've suffered from hypochondria since I was around eight or nine years old. I'm 33 now. Um, After my elementary school showed us videos about HIV AIDS. After that, I became convinced that I had HIV AIDS. At the time, I was being molested by my dad's friend. I feel that the two are connected, but I'm not a professional, so I don't really know. The abuse stopped around 10, but my hypochondria did not. Another movie I watched was about a girl with leg cancer who had to have her leg amputated. I I remember rubbing my left fibula bone at the time to check for cancer because I was so worried about it. The constant rubbing made it hurt, which re- reinforced my fear of uh, of leg cancer, right. which made me rub it more. I'll never forget sitting on my porch, rubbing my leg while crying, and my oldest brother looking at me with this weird expression on his face. <laughs> Over the years, my hypochondria has gotten better has gotten better than worse. Now, mostly in times of stress, does it come up more? My theory is that my anxious brain needs something to put that anxiety on, and it goes to health-related things. My family laughs about it. They tell me to go to the doctor, but I'm so afraid I'll actually be diagnosed with something. (laughs) It's good you are going to do an episode on hypochondria because some people think it's a joke when it can be very debilitating. Wow, yeah. Yeah, you know, people make fun of it. You even make fun of yourself in this process. And I think in certain situations, maybe it's okay to do for your sake and maybe other people's sake to have a little laugh about it. But I do think that the needle has to be more balanced. We need need to take this seriously because it is a very, very serious condition. Absolutely. And I can say from experience that when you're in it, it's no fucking joke. Yeah. And uh, more to the point, and, and I'll talk more about this, like like experience I had recently, it it doesn't matter that it was in my head. It was terrible. Yeah. You know? Yeah, people make fun of it. Woody Allen uh, plays various characters with hypochondria, right? 
for example, in Hannah and Her Sisters, if you remember that one. I didn't see that. Oh, it's one of the one of the sort of quintessential Woody Allen movies. From I was the, afraid I would get sick from watching from the seventies. <laughs> uh, and his his hypochondria is played for laughs. Uh, uh, David Schwimmer's character in Madagascar. Oh yeah, the giraffe. Yeah, yeah. He's always you know worried about something, yes. and it and he's like the main comedic relief. Right. Uh, lots of stand-up routines. Routines. All you have to do is go on YouTube and search, you know, hypochondria comedy on YouTube, sure. and there's just like uh, stand-up set <laughs> after stand-up set. Usually, men actually, which is interesting. Women aren't usually the ones who are making jokes about their hypochondria, right. which I find curious. Why do you that think is that odd. is? I don't know because well, that is interesting. Because like in my case, when when I was a kid, I wasn't a hypochondriac at all. My grandma was, and I think I, I kind of picked up that from her potentially. I remember my dad telling me like, "Oh, your your grandma is your your grandma's a hypochondriac." Blah 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 blah. And my dad was hyper sensitive to cleanliness, like everything had to be clean, and oh, don't don't eat that; it's been sitting out and stuff. Yeah. But I wasn't, so I don't know. Like you know, I, I never thought of it as like a male or a female thing. It was like yeah, but clearly in popular media, it's more of a of a male thing, at least in, I guess so. in movies and TV yeah. shows. Um, <clears throat> even though women probably statistically suffer from it more. By the way, uh, before going further, I just want to tell everyone that this episode is going to be for patrons only. So if you're not a patron, don't get angry later when we turn off the feed. <laughs> but um, also I want to say that this is an episode that is very near and dear to me as well. I, I suffer from health anxiety as well. And that this has been a very helpful process for me to explore. And mm. I've spent the past two or three weeks really getting into this and looking at the research and the treatment and thinking about my own path and, and observing other people's paths. Yeah. And, and so, you know, I, I, I've, I, I don't think I've ever completed a set of notes with more satisfaction than I have at uh, this time, because I have stories from people <laughs> on Facebook. Anyway, but yeah, I mean, I, I suspect it's funny for us to laugh at men with "quote unquote" hypochondria or health anxiety because men are supposed to be strong, and so it's this reversal if they're "quote unquote" weak, right? Right. They're scaredy cats. It's it's funny. It's like the the lion without the courage in Wizard right. of Oz. It's it's funny. It's like, oh, isn't that funny that that. Yeah. man is is scared you know right, right. whereas oh, for a woman to be scared it's like culturally speaking it's this expected thing well women are weak so of course they're scared you know what i mean which you know it is actually really interesting you bring that up because if you think about it the scarecrow has no brain but that's sort of like what you would expect right the tin man has no heart well that's what you would expect from a tin man but the lion the lion lacks courage. That's not what you expect from a, from a lion. Right. It's really weird. Right. It'd be one thing if it was like a weasel that lacked courage. Yeah. Or Medical students and psychology students often, often laugh about getting hypochondria in graduate school. <laughs> it's actually a very frequent really? joke that Interesting. Uh, medical students and psychology students, when they learn about the conditions that they're learning about, yeah. everyone's like, oh my God, I have that. I have that. <laughs> and it, it's one of the things that any experienced instructor will start the quarter with or the term like, with. Don't worry. You're going right. to think you have this. Right. Uh, <clears throat> but again, it's played as a joke. It's like, haha, isn't that funny? Again, right. you can look on YouTube and find medical students and psychology students laughing about it. Mm. 
Um, so it's no joke. Like the patron emailing in, like I will attest to, like you will attest to, it's massive amounts of suffering. It is not fun. No. It is potentially lifelong suffering, horribleness, Ugh. and tension. And, you know, for a lot of people, at best, they're just, like, managing it. Yeah. At best, they're just, like, only thinking about dying or contracting a disease yeah. 10 times a day <laughs> instead of 100, Ugh. you know? And this joking uh, culture... Right. You know, because if you asked people without health anxiety or even people with what they thought about <laughs> health anxiety, they I'm guessing a lot of them would immediately, oh, it's hypochondria. Oh, yeah, it's, you know, it's funny. You know, people worry about this adds to the stigma. Sure. It, it doesn't help people who already are ashamed and not coming forward, who already beat themselves up. And honestly, it doesn't help the clinical world either, because right. I find that a lot of clinicians We'll make jokes about it too, and we'll think of it as this silly thing that I'm being crazy. I should just right. Uh, I should so, get over it. Right. There's a sort of assumption that y you just just get over it. Just stop. You know, stop it. it. As if it's not an actual condition in the DSM, right? And in, in which it is, uh, which we'll go into, and as if it's like, like imagine you're colorblind. It's like just stop it. Yeah. Or you have schizophrenia, or yeah. you have panic disorder, or you have major depression. Right. And of course, we have stigma around that too, and yeah. people will... Uh, Cheer up. Yeah, just stop that. But I think, you know, comparatively, more people validate depression and OCD, maybe, hopefully. Well, maybe and OCD. I think there's been more media over the years that deals with those topics in more serious ways. Right. I don't know that I've seen, I'm sure there is, but I don't remember like a lot of mainstream, like taking hypochondria seriously. Nothing know? vastly popular yeah. anyway. Yeah. Um, and here's the facts that I found, which is actually surprising. So how, what percentage of people, particularly in the United States, suffer from full-blown diagnosable really? health anxiety DSM diagnosis? What, oh what, what percentage do you think? Uh, 20%. Ten uh, percent. <laughs> so, uh, but that's high, right? That's ridiculously high. I mean, one in ten. That's crazy. Like, you and I are one of the ten. So, thirty-five million people. That's crazy, right? So, it's one of the more common conditions one will suffer from at some point in their life. Wow, you know, and it is one of those things that tends to be lifelong. Yeah, kind of comes and goes uh, in terms of symptom severity. And physicians often don't know what to do. They're often the people who, you know, medical people will be the first person to kind of experience it. Yeah. Um, you know, when they, su when they suspect that a patient is suffering from it, uh, in my experience and research shows, most of them don't know what to do or mm. what they do do is not uh, entirely effective. Right. And there's huge costs on our society and our Ugh. mental health and our mental health and, you know, medical system, right? Sure. Like, I can't remember the stat, but some estimates range it from 10 to 40% of our health care. Wow. Yeah. Because if, you know, 35 for, million. <laughs> because, the, right. If you have 35 million people who sure. are going to the physician more often, 20 times more often yeah. th than they need to, yeah. then that's going to jack up the prices, right? And you can't always dismiss everything, right? Because what, what about if you missed the time they were actually sick? Right. So 
<clears throat> now, there are answers. There are ways to treat this. Uh, and I actually, even in just prepping for this episode, you know, taking these notes and thinking about it, my health anxiety has decreased. Wow. Um, anxiety lends itself very much to knowledge. The cure yeah. has often been for people knowledge. It has, certainly has been for me. when. Yeah. I suffered from panic disorder in my early 20s. And when I went to graduate school and I took, you know, psychopathology and I thought, I think I have panic disorder. Uh It's because I indeed did. And just the fact that I learned it was a thing in the DSM, pretty much 95% of the disorder was gone. Like overnight. Overnight. Right. Like, and and with my anxiety as it manifests, and I like the way the anonymous patron writes it, you know, she's like, my theory is my anxious brain just needs something to put anxiety onto, mm-hmm. and it goes to health-related things. And that, that's the, what it's true for a lot of anxious people. You know, we tend to have these discrete labels, OCD, yeah. social anxiety, specific phobia, panic, health anxiety, um, generalized anxiety. You know, we have all these different labels, but for, in my experience, a lot of people a better label is just like, well, they have anxiety that manifests in these different labels, uh, you know, over time. Sure. Anyway. But yeah, there are answers, and that's what we're going to talk about today. We're going to talk about our own experiences. We're going to tell more stories <clears throat> from Facebook and from Reddit that I actually found. I actually subscribe to the subreddit Health Anxiety. Oh, boy. <laughs> uh, which is actually a good community. I'm going to, although it might trigger people maybe, anyway... We're going to talk about the definition, which is actually kind of interesting to talk about. We're going to go into the DSM diagnoses, the ICD diagnoses, common physical symptoms that crop up, which I found to be very interesting. Oh. You know, the, the typical physical sure. ailments that people with health anxiety will tend to experience, okay. which I found very familiar to me. We're going to talk about how do we assess it. We're going to assess ourselves. I'm going to give you an online test and see where you are in the scale of things. We're going to talk about the theory. Why do people suffer this way? Why do people develop this? We're going to talk about risk factors. We're going to talk about a thing called cyberchondria, which is, you know, internet hyperchondria. We're going to finish it up with with some treatment and, again, some more stories from actual people suffering from health anxiety. This is the Psychology in Seattle podcast. I'm your host, Dr. Kirk Honda. I'm a therapist and a professor. My name is Humberto Castaña, and I make asbestos-lined Kleenex. This episode is just for patrons of the podcast, so if you are not a patron, this episode is going to end now. If you are a patron, you're going to hear this full episode, which I'm guessing will be at least a couple hours. So uh, if you're not a patron and you want to hear this full thing, go to patreon.com and become a patron. Do it now. All right, welcome to the Patron Zone, people. Patron Zone. So what, who fa- what famous people are reported to have suffered from health anxiety? Oh, famous people. Huh. Uh, Princess Leia. Uh, <laughs> What's her name? Carrie Fisher. Oh, uh, I don't know. Maybe she did. Um, I, thought, I thought I had read that she had. Maybe she did. Um, let's see. Let's see. The Queen, Queen Elizabeth. Uh, I don't know. No? Maybe she does. Okay. <laughs> I, I don't think she does. You mean the current queen? Yeah, the current queen. Yeah, I don't think she does. Okay. Um, it's hard to know, but reportedly Andy Warhol suffered from it. Okay. Kafka, oh boy. Uh, Edgar Allan Poe, Charlotte Bronte, 
Uh, Florence Nightingale, mm. interestingly, yeah, and Charles Darwin. Oh. It's hard to know because it's in their diaries okay. or whatever. And but uh, reportedly, they all at least talked about their own anxiety. And I think for some of them, Darwin in particular, there's more detailed accounts of from his own diary, like what was going through his mind all the time. True. Yeah. So it, it appears to be something that. At least in you know industrial times, has been around for a while. By the way, that seems crazy to me because uh, sorry, I shouldn't use the word crazy. That seems in- incredible to me because if you think about Darwin, if he actually had these these issues, going to Galapagos and going to all these like jungly places and exposing themselves to exposing himself to all sorts of creatures he's never seen before and and like looking at them closely and man, that would. Drive me nuts. <laughs> well, the ideas of contamination back then might might have been different. That's true. That's true. Uh, also, uh, what people focus on with all anxiety disorders often doesn't have a logic to it. That's true. Oh, and maybe actually it was the opposite. It's like he lived in dreary like Europe and then he's like oh this is sunny and nice right I mean who knows but yeah. it's possible because back then they did associate disease with like swampy areas yeah. that you know the miasma I think they called it which yeah. wasn't actually what was really happening it was something else entirely anyway so Facebook poll I asked people uh, Brent said that his health anxiety he says it sucks you're constantly searching yourself for tactile sensations in your body, which might indicate you do or don't have the illness of your choice. Even if all evidence points towards good health, your brain has a way of convincing you otherwise. No matter what, you're always sick, you're always sick, you're always dying, and the death will be slow and painful. Oh God. Can you relate to that? Um, to some extent, sure. How so? So um, I think I can't exactly place when my health anxiety started, but some notable things that I can relate to in that description are um, when I had my first panic attack, um, you know, I was sure I was having a heart attack, you know, so physically I thought I was dying, literally dying. I didn't think it was going to be slow. I was like, okay, this is it, you know? Um, And then when I've, I mean, I've had appendicitis and hernias so many times when I was younger. Like, I had them through my 20s and my 30s. I had appendicitis countless times because I'd be sitting there after like a meal or something. I'm like, oh God, my side hurts. And I'd be like telling my friends, like, I think this is it. I think I actually think this is appendicitis. Or um, I'd like lift something and something would tweak a bit. And I'm like, oh crap, I just herniated. Hmm. And I'm like, oh, I got, like, I remember one, many years ago, I was running and after the run or something, I felt the pain, like in like my crotch area or something. And I was like, oh, fuck, I have a hernia. And, and for weeks I was like, oh my God, I have a hernia. And I went to the doctor and the doctor was like, uh, do this, do that. They did a few tests. Like, no, you don't have a hernia. It sounds like you just like slightly pulled a muscle, like not even fully. You just need to stretch and maybe get a massage. And over time it went away, <laughs> you know, but I had that so many times. Right. The other possibility I'll throw out there is that some of those instances that it was what we call psychogenic, which what people often call psychosomatic sure. and what other psychology people will call somatic. 
in that you through a neuronal feedback loop that you're you know you feel a little ghost sensation right and then your brain says i have a problem down there and then through a feedback loop of your neurons you actually start to create a pain down there that's real but it's because you're worried about having something in that region Oh, absolutely. And then it builds and builds totally. and builds. In fact, the, the thing that the first patron was saying, like, that they ru- were rubbing their leg. Yeah. Uh, I've done that at, with different parts of my body where it's like something was hurting a little bit or maybe it was just ga- a little bit of gas or something. But I'm like, oh. And then after a while, it's painful. Right. Because I keep bothering it. Right. Right. <laughs> and, again, just even focusing on it psychologically can cause right. you to, like... We can all do this to ourselves right now. If you if you just pick a point in your body and you just really kind of stress out about right. that point on your body, your body starts to send things to it. I, you know, I'm not a physiologist, so I don't yeah. know, but like white blood cells or yeah. expanding of blood vessels or concern or you know, a swelling of or some. You could kind. even start being more sensitive to any sensations because your brain right. might be okay. Like, let's take in more. Higher bandwidth from the sensations coming from that place. Right. The reverse is true. I think most of us accept that, that say you're in pain and you have back pain, for right. example, and you divert your attention to something else. Yep. Swelling will go down in that area because yep. our attention is not spent on that. And so the reverse is true, is that if we spend a lot of attention on yep. something, we can actually create a problem that that didn't exist originally. And if you spend five years doing that, you will create a functional problem, but it won't be life threatening. It'll just be irritation and this kind of thing. Yeah. yeah. Zoe says it's constantly needing reassurance from medical professional or someone who has an illness. You suspect you have just make your anxiety go away. Huh? I don't know. Then the next symptom occurs. The cycle repeats itself. Always obsessing over symptoms, unusual pains in the body, and avoiding doing something that could result in being sick, like food poisoning, for example. Avoiding certain foods foods for fear of getting sick, then it developing into something worse. The only thing that alleviates my health anxiety is confirmation from a medical professional or some sort of proof, like a blood test showing there's nothing wrong. During stressful times, the health anxiety becomes even worse. Yeah. Can you relate to the medical people reassuring you? Absolutely. Especially like blood tests and things like that. Um, I have had pretty good luck with medical professionals in that I don't feel they've ever, the ones I've had have been like dismissive. Um, and in fact, when I had my first panic attack when I was 30, I went to the doctor like the next day or, or something like that. And uh, the doctor examined me and then she said that she thought that I had had a panic attack. And she was super kind and, and comfort, comforting about it and recommended that I might... I, she didn't say you have to get therapy. She said, you might want to talk to someone. You might want to look into into therapy. Um, I thought that was a really good experience because it was assurance from a doctor that, you know, from my professional medical opinion, you're not having a heart attack. That was great, right? I was like, okay, good. And two, here's a potential answer. Like when you said when you found out that a pa- panic attacks were a thing... Somehow I had forgotten about the Sopranos because I, I kind of like knew about that. But when the doctor said, yeah, you might have had a panic attack, I'm like, oh, oh, okay. And then every time they started to reoccur after that, it was never as severe. 
And I started slowly but surely. It wasn't immediate. It's slowly but surely, I started started being able to like tell myself things about it and remind myself, yeah, okay. And then sure enough, I following that advice, that's when I first went to therapy in the first place. So that was a really good experience. And like the, the patron says, it was that reassurance from a professional. I've also had other cases where, because unfortunately, when you do have this health anxiety, um, when you do have a medical problem, even if it's not severe, that can make everything worse because you have an actual physical symptom. And so then your your mind's like, well, ho, ho, this is real. Like, my skin is purple or something, you know, whatever. So, for example, <clears throat> um, when uh, I had, you know, recently I was having some medical issues, and, and I'll go into more detail on that in a bit. But one of the things is I thought that my thyroid levels were, were low because uh, three years ago, my TSH had tested a little low. And even though it had come back to normal, I was like, oh, shoot, I bet you this is my thyroid. Bet you this is my thyroid. And I started... When was this? Uh, this was about a month ago. Mm-hmm. And I started obsessing about it and looking up all this information. Was there and- a trigger? Yes, yes. I had been feeling really bad because I actually had a stomach virus. Um, but but so then I started thinking, oh, maybe all this is worse because of my thyroid levels. So that was one path I went down. And it wasn't the only path I went down. Was there another psychosocial trigger to it, like life in general or job or something? Uh, yeah, there were a lot of factors that could have been adding up to this for sure. Uh, job, uh, relative that's sick. Uh, things like that for sure. But it did definitely start with, I actually did get a stomach virus. And so like it started with me having a very loose, you know, stomach and being shivery and having flushing symptoms. That was all real, at least as real as symptoms get. But then there were a whole bunch of problems that started mounting because what started happening is first off, it wasn't like a normal food poison. Well, I've had food poisoning before where it's like full-on fever, throwing up, like the works, right? And it wasn't quite like that. And I didn't have a fever, and I'm like, what the hell? Number one. Number two, I was feeling, if, if you've ever taken niacin, not flesh-free well, wait, niacin, so but normal you niacin. had the stomach flu. Yeah. Then you started to f- start attribute it to thyroid. No, not yet, not yet. What happened oh. is everything was fine. A Monday, on a Monday... I'm at work and then I got to go use the bathroom and it's like my stomach's super loose and very gurgly. Okay. I'm like, oh, that's weird. Then I go two more times throughout that day. Same thing. And I'm like, well, geez. This is after the stomach flu? No, no. This is how it started. Oh. This was how it started. And I was like, geez, that's really weird. And then that night, but I didn't think too much of it. I was like, okay, I, something I ate just irritated my stomach. That night, I went to go to sleep and I, when I laid down at midnight... Uh, like my stomach was like rumbling weirdly. And then I started feeling anxiety and I also started feeling kind of shivery and, uh, skin vasodilation symptoms, like flushing feeling. So good. So let's walk ourselves through this because this is the beginning. So now I obviously, and I'm not a medical professional, so I can't even speculate as to the viability or the possible diagnoses that were uh, you know befalling you right uh, but I will say that based on your description there's a lot of I'll speculate from a layperson's that there's a lot of possibilities um, ranging from an actual functional problem you know like a virus or 
uh, I don't know, stomach cancer, you know, right. what, what some kind of diagnosable problem that you could find strong evidence for if you investigated, ranging from that to just a normal bodily thing that happens to people all the time. And if you didn't worry about it, it would have passed. Who knows? Yeah. But I, I, but I think that's a point that to bring up because with right. for people with health anxiety, you and I <laughs> will focus on like, oh, it's definitely something's wrong, and and then the stress hormones increase, the attention increases, yep. the inflammation maybe increases, these kinds of things. Obviously, when you're upset and anxious, your your GI tract is going to be thrown off on some level. Your immune system isn't going to function as well when you're stressed out. If you're going to lose sleep, then you're really going to suffer immune system problems. Yep. Then you might actually create a problem because yeah. of that. So I but. In that first instance, you had some stomach things and they, you know, you, you did what you could to stave off the anxiety by saying, well, yeah, it's just probably, you know, just something I ate. I literally just, yeah, at that, up until the evening, I was like, yeah, that's weird. I just must have, actually, I was thinking, I guess that I added a lot of hot sauce last night. So maybe, you know, I maybe. was thinking something. Yeah. Oh, and, yeah. And then you lay down to bed. Yeah. Are you more prone to health anxiety at night? I've had definitely uh, anxiety things at night, yes. Are, but do you think you're more I so? I think so. Yeah, I am. Uh, although, I, yes, I think so. A lot of people are. Probably. I have had anxiety things during the day, too, but probably more at night. Yeah. Uh, my For me, it's because I, and, you know, there's limited science to back this up, but... Our, uh, we have a, a lot of systems in our brain that need to operate for us to be functional in life. And there's a, a set of functions in the brain that uh, when they're working right in my brain, they actually keep me from the anxiety feedback loop Sure. where I might have a thought, like say it's morning time and all my brain is working correctly. And I have this notion like, Oh, you have that feet because for me lately it's been like throat stuff because I've had um, uh, I had a pretty bad bout of gastric reflux uh, yeah. for a while and I you know I don't even know if it was that bad it was just it was diagnosable you but know you kept being hoarse yeah and it was the the main symptom I had that was bothersome was I couldn't sing so you know, I, I have it, the same thing right now by the way. Yeah, well you it had started, that before and I've had it before and it started four weeks ago again. Okay, so. I need to go to a uh, GI or something. Yeah. Uh, yeah. So th I noticed that when I would sing for about a span of like maybe six months or something, whenever I would sing in my band, yeah. I would immediately lose my voice in a way that I never used to do. Yeah. I've always been able to, you know, in bands, especially when I get up to kind of cruising speed with a band. I can sing all night long, and I'll be hoarse, but I'll also sing. Yeah, I'll, yeah, I'll manage, you know. But song two, I'd be like, I'd it, this voice would just be gone. And you and, weren't even singing like Beatles or something. It was like you know strokes. Well, yeah, but when you know you're in a live band and you're not at home in your quiet little office, there's and the monitors suck. Sure. You're doing a lot of sure, you're doing true. a lot of pushing. Yeah. But anyway. Uh, and then, you know, I went to the physician and they said, oh, yeah, you know, it looks like you have, uh, you know, gastric reflux that's irritating your larynx and blah, blah, blah. 
And so I was like, huh, you know, I'd, I'd never really had, I had a, a brief bout of that a long time ago, but it yeah. didn't really bother me. And so, so lately I've been having, uh, I'll feel something in my throat and I'll think, oh, it's the gastric reflex. Right. Oh, I have esophageal cancer, ah. cancer, which is a death sentence. You know, and from what I understand, yeah. I actually have a relative who died from esophageal cancer uh, within like a couple months of being uh. diagnosed. And so, so um, <clears throat> that's what, what it is for me. And so when I have a little bit of a tickle or a little bit of an experience, it's usually at night when I'll, it'll trigger me. In the daytime, I'll have that little experience. Yeah. And, and even though I have the same facts in my brain, it doesn't result in it cascading because the the concert of of functions of the brain uh, work in a way so that it doesn't run away with itself at night in the darkness when i'm laying down to go to sleep and i can't, and it takes me right. a little bit to fall asleep those parts of the brain aren't working as strong but my amygdala is is sure. is running high you know yeah, it's a yeah. strong part of my brain and so uh, so at that point, it, it, it's like it starts running away with itself. So that's why I asked you if, if that happens to you. That definitely happens to me. And in fact, that was what what at first I figured was happening, like, sort of. Like, I, I, I couldn't go to sleep. Um, and so I stayed up till 3.30. And finally, I like I propped myself up in the bed. Were you worried? Uh, I started to get worried because I'm like... And again, I started thinking, oh, shoot, is, is my thyroid finally, like, too low or something? Like, that's what I was thinking. But, uh, and I kept, I took my temperature once and it was no fever. And I'm like, that's weird because I had chills. And, and like I said, the new symptom that I had never felt other than when I took niacin was the flushing feeling. That was really bizarre. So well, like, and flushing <sighs> can be from anxiety. But I've never felt that before. Again, like the first time I felt that was my my stepdad gave me a niacin pill like a few years ago. And and I was like, what the hell is this? Um, but it felt like that. And I was like, and I hadn't taken any niacin. I'm like, what the hell? By but, the way, just to really put a fine point on all that what you're saying, it's impossible to know. Yeah. And I don't know the common effects of niacin is that. When you were given niacin a long time ago, it triggered a mini anxiety reaction, which Could resulted be. in flushing. Yeah. And uh, so you might even be recalling a past yeah. mini anxiety. We just, it's just <laughs> impossible to know the answer. So the, the thing that started being weird is that I finally fell asleep at 3.30 in the morning and I woke up like at 6 or So now you're sleep deprived. Yeah. You probably barely slept anyway because you got... Big to like running hot all yeah, night long. I, I, I was able to prop myself up and I finally just collapsed from exhaustion. And I woke up and when I first woke up, I was hoping like I was feeling better, but I wasn't feeling better. I'm like, okay, this is not great. And I got up. And so several things started happening that started making it worse, no matter what started it. One is when I had taken my blood pressure in the at night, the blood pressure was sort of normal. It was a little high, but mine runs a little high. But my pulse was 40. 40 is really low. 40? You know? 40. Your yeah. pulse was 40? 40. That is weird. That is and I was like, what the fudge? And then I kept was, looking. Was it actually 40? 
Or was that a mis- misreading? That's, I don't know. That's what the, the cuff said. That's what the thing said. Did you test it again? I didn't test it again. Oh, because um, <laughs> it can misread But something. I kept looking at my watch, which is an Apple watch, which reads your, your pulse. And it, keep, it kept being low. And I'm like, uh, not 40, but it was like in the 50s and in the uh, 48. And I'm like, okay, this is not good. Yeah. And I kept being shivering. And, th- and anyways, I kept thinking... Man, maybe I should go to the doctor. Yeah. And I was like, okay, I'm not going to go to work because I don't feel well. So, so for the record, it's possible to have psychogenic lowering of blood, right. of blood pulse. Right. But in my experience, that's, that's not a frequent occurrence. Right. It's usually the opposite direction. Right. Which is why I started being a little concerned. And then, and then I was like, I'm not going to go to work because I don't feel well. Like I just, I felt like, cra- I felt how you would feel. If you had a full fever, like food poisoning, I just didn't have a fever. Yeah. So I'm like, okay. And my stomach was a mess. Okay. So I was yeah. like, okay. Something's up. Something's up. But I had to renew my license because this was on my birthday. This was the 28th, my birthday. Yeah. So I'm like, all right. Well, so I went and, oh, and here's the other thing. Um, in December, I had gone to the doctor for a physical. Why didn't you get your license earlier? Um... I don't know. Because you know you don't have to do it on your birthday. Right, right, right. <laughs> That's true. Uh, oh, I know what it was. I, I had tried to do it online. Yeah. But because I needed a new photo, it, I, I wasn't able to. Yeah. And so then I was like, shoot, I got to do it on. Uh, but you're right. I could have planned better. Anyway, um, but it, I'm just. But in yeah. December, which definitely contributed a bit to the that day's anxiety, right? And it's my birthday and all these things. In December, I had gone to the physical to the doctor and the doctor had said, uh, you know, everything was fine, but but we're like, hey, we should probably do a new blood test because it's been a couple of years. And I was like, yep, makes sense. But I had procrastinated and I hadn't gotten blood tests. Well, that night, Monday night, when I was having those symptoms, like at 1 a.m. in the morning, I was like, shit, I'm going to order the blood test. So I went online to, to this online service and I ordered the full men, men's panel. And I made the, the, I looked online and I could go the next day in the morning um, I had you to can fast. just order that. You can just order. Yeah. I want that. Yeah, huh. and you had to fast for twelve hours. So I was like, shoot, I gotta go like at noon, basically, because this was like at midnight or one. So I, I did. So in the morning, I was like at home. I was doing some work from home. I didn't feel good. I kept being very worried, and I'm thinking I should probably go to the doctor, but I didn't. And then I'm like, all right, I'm gonna go get this blood test done. So I went, drove myself to the thing, and I'm sitting there like shivery and full flushing feeling, feeling like absolute garbage. And they start drawing blood and it wasn't one vial. It was like 10 large vials because it was all. a whole panel. So can you imagine? So they start trying to draw it from the right arm and they only got one out and then it stopped like working. So then they would go to the left arm and inject it and then they draw and they keep drawing and they keep drawing. I'm sitting there just like with all the mental fortitude I can. I'm like, breathe. You're fine. Meanwhile, feeling like I don't know what's going on, right? Does, so, they, so did the blood draw uh, trigger your anxiety? I'm pretty good about that stuff, ironically. So no. Okay. Somehow I was able to survive it, even though they drew like... I asked the lady, I'm like, is this as much as if I was donating blood? She's like, not quite. But <laughs> So then I left. And, and right away I had like some food because I was starving too. I was like, yeah. you know... And I went to renew my license and I'm renewing my license. And the whole time I'm having to like do self-talk and breathing because I feel like really terrible, right? What are you saying to yourself? I'm like, I'm saying the things, you know, like this is, this might be psychosomatic or maybe you are sick, but you're making it worse or just 
breathe, just take it easy. Is and it working? It's sort of working, but at the same time, I'm, I'm, there's the other voice going, yeah, dude, but this has been going on now for like 18 hours. Okay. And so that voice thinks what's happening? Uh, you got to, well, it thinks you got to go to the clinic. But like, what's the worry? You're dying? Yeah. Like, uh, I could be having heart symptoms or something. You know? Like, or, is that what it's thinking? You're dying? At the moment, I, if I if I'm putting myself because I, I see myself, I picture myself myself at the DMV, and I'm thinking, uh, okay, uh, I'm thinking, all right, this is not normal. Something's seriously wrong. And and the things that were running through my head is my thyroid's finally depleted, and I'm like in serious trouble here. Or like you're gonna die because I uh, the reason why not, I say this is because it's possible that you didn't have an actual word to the ca- catastrophe, but. Some people do. And so for people listening, it's important to understand that for yourself. You know, there's a there's a version of this where it's just like this unnamed cliff of uncertainty of doom. Right. Um, or there's like a heart attack and death. I definitely didn't think from the thyroid theory, I didn't think I was going to die because I had read enough about it when I first had that three years ago. I knew about as much as I could know about it. So I'm like, no, no. If this is the thyroid thing, that's actually good news because it sucks, but they'll just have to start giving me the thyroid hormone and that'll be it. But my second theory was um, something else is wrong. And that included, well, stomach issues, um, having these like flushing feelings and shivers, cold extremities. It could be a heart thing. And that worried me a little bit. Right. The other one were more like, and maybe this is some virus and I'm just really sick or something, you know. When I exited the, the thing, got, got my license, I thought, screw this. I'm going to the clinic. So I drove myself to the emergency clinic, went in. And this is where it all got worse. Because... Well, so just to make sure, yeah. the panel, it takes like a few days to come back. Yeah, that one came out back on Friday, so I hadn't gotten that back yet. So that, so that, that how long was that? What day of the week is are we at? Right, uh, right now? now we're on Tuesday. Okay. And so you're just like, I can't wait till Friday to figure out I can't wait if till I'm Friday. dying. I got to find Oh, and I had a doctor's appointment coming up, like, because I had called and made an appointment. It was, I think it was on Thursday or something. But I'm like, I, I'm sorry. I, I got to go somewhere. So I went to the emergency clinic, not the ER, just the local like emergency clinic. And I went in, they looked at me and stuff. And I was hoping to hear something reassuring. But this is where things got worse because. Okay. So good. Yeah. I'm glad you're about to tell us. Now, yeah. I'll tell you what I do just as a side note to this. Since I feel like I'm a little further down the road in my awareness of my health anxiety, I certainly suffer from it. But one of the things that I do when I am in this state and I go to physicians, because I don't trust them, is I say, so I suffer from health anxiety. If you think I, I have nothing to worry about, you could end my problems by just telling me I have nothing right. to worry about. Right, right, right. I might have some questions to make sure that you're qualified to state that, but that's what I'm looking for. So what I'm not looking for is for you to tell me every possible potential problem that could be wrong with me. Now, if I do have something that is potentially wrong with me, then by all means, by let's, all means right? let's look into it. I don't want to be in denial yeah. about something, but I just want to let you know the landscape we're in right now. Right. 
medical people always struggle with how to respond to that, but yep. <laughs> but it gives them a better chance of being like, oh, I have this one, like my throat doctor, for example. She she'll I've only been to her like I don't know two or three times in the past three years, but she says she'll be like, oh yeah, no. Kirk, you have nothing to worry about. I mean, there's some concern there. Like, we'll we'll get on top of this, yeah. but I'm not worried about anything, you know. Yeah. And she looks into my throat with a scope and everything. Right. She's like, I I don't see anything that I'm worried about. And I'll be like, Are you? Are those coded words for cancer? She's like, <laughs> and she's like, Because she, they will. They'll 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 use code, you know, because really? they don't want it. They don't want to say the c word because they don't okay. want to freak people out. But I I know enough about medicine to know that that that's a possibility and that doesn't trigger me. So I'll say, so you don't see any signs of cancer. She's like, no, I don't see any signs of cancer. Um, So that's what I say, but that's not what you said. So, right. You go to the, Um, you go to the clinic and you're just like, what's wrong with me? Well, I mean, no, because remember, I also, I grew up in a medical house and so I'm sort of the opposite. I, I'm I'm kind of the worst, the doctor's worst nightmare from the other side, which is, here's all the research I did before coming here, and here's all the things I think might be wrong with me, yeah. right? But, I mean, I didn't fully do that. I just kind of gave an account of what had happened to me since the previous day. Right. And you also don't say, I'm suffering from health anxiety. Well, I, I, I didn't in that moment. I did since then, but... We'll get to that. Yes, yeah. you're right. I didn't say that. Which I just want to give general advice to people out yeah. there. It's unknown because you never know the kind of person you'll come up against, but it might help to I, say that up front so right. that they know what what problems they could recreate. It'll give them the opportunity, if yeah. they know anything about health anxiety, right. to take care of your health anxiety as they also try to take care of your health. Right. Like I did mention to the nurse or the doctor, whoever it was, I said, along the while I was relating everything, I said um, that I've had similar feelings before from anxiety, but it's only like, it doesn't last this long. You know, I kind of said something like that. Um, And I said, and not the flushing. It's more like, you know, I've had like, like feelings of like things are not right and like anxiety. Anyways. So on a scale from one to 10, how freaked out are you at this point at the clinic? At this moment, before the thing that happens next, I am probably at a, a seven. Wow. Yeah. I, I just I just want to point this out for listeners and maybe for you as well. The way you tell a story, it, I don't hear the freak out. I, I hear, I imply, I inf- it, you know, it's implied. And that, I'm not externally freaking out even in the clinic as I'm doing. Right. It's all internal. Right. And I just want to, I, I think you deserve to voice the freak out part ah! <laughs> well you know what i mean because yeah. it's it's that's the main thing here yeah. even if you did have something right. functionally wrong with your body you deserve to have yeah. that out in the in right. the air of just like i was a seven out of ten i was freaking the fuck out i was yeah. terrified i don't want to die i don't want to have cancer i don't right. want to have to take medications the rest of my right, life right, right, right. i don't want to have to have surgery it that scares those are the visions that go through my mind right that freaks me out right but you don't say that i just want to in the past when we've talked about this before i hear it behind or i suspect it's behind there i thought you were going to say you were like a three given your just the way you talk about no it. no i was feeling really bad yeah and if your therapist were here she would say berto we've talked about this right yeah like allow yourself to sure. express your emotions so, yeah but, but because i because i was aware of the potential mental part of it i was also trying to be as 
as collected as as I could, you know. Okay, but, and when all your knowledge could only get you down to a seven, yeah, and all your coping skills could only keep you at a seven, yeah. without those coping skills, you would have been higher, yeah. And so that's I, I would have. That, that's how much pressure is behind our amygdala to, to you know, to overpower right. our brain. Because, for example, when I had my first panic attack, it was a 10. Right. I was like, I'm dying. I'm dying right this second. Yeah, yeah. Well, and it panic. wasn't in a calm voice. Is I was in a theater watching Harry Potter 2. I had to leave the theater, go outside, and I was, like, desperate. And I'm like, I'm dying. Like, And then I, I didn't know what to do. Right. So much so that... I don't even know. Did I not have a cell phone? Why didn't I call nine one? I don't even know. Yeah. But anyways, so I'm sitting there, and then they, they, um, because of my symptoms, they say, "Well, we're going to take an EKG because your symptoms, you know, could be that." So they do an EKG, and this is a, where it really goes downhill because they do the EKG, and the EKG comes back, and she says, "All right, so there's a slight anomaly in your EKG." So. We're going to need to do this test called a troponin test. And then she says, words that I'll always remember, because you might be having a cardiac event. (laughs) Which is true, but not helpful to the health anxiety. When she said those words, again, externally, I tried to remain internally. Every cell in my body lit up. Was it like those moments in the movies where, you know, the sound goes yes. down and the ears yes. ringing goes up yes. and you can't hear yes. anything? And- it's the bomb just went off. Yeah. That's what it was. I was like, oh, shit, this is the big one. So this is afternoon Tuesday. This is at like 4, 3.30 or 4. Yeah. It's like 3.30. Yeah. On my birthday. Right. So I'm sitting there. They do the troponin test. Now, the troponin test luckily comes back negative. And not even like, well, it's a little elevated. No, like completely negative. So she says, well, because of your symptoms and your EKG, I recommend you go to the ER. I don't think it's like we don't need an ambulance. I think you can drive yourself, but that's what I would recommend. So I'm like, I drive myself. And by the way, I got to describe just how lonely this felt because I was on my birthday with no one except these strangers telling me scary things and I was already scared. You know, I just want to say you could have called me and I would have helped you. I I mean, I I wouldn't have been able to help, but I would have been there. Ron said the same thing to me and I don't I don't have a good reason. I know. I get it. I know. I I don't get it. For future reference. Ron said the same thing and I agree. I don't get it. I think there was a combination. Look, while all this is happening, by the way, I was liking and commenting on my birthday wishes on Facebook. Yeah. And I was sitting there. But you know, part of what it was is like, I was thinking, remember, Umberto, you tend to have anxiety. And this might all be okay. Like, so I kept thinking, I I didn't think it was time to call all... You know, like ring all the bells. Uh, I had I had spoken, you know, I had spoken to my dad. So uh, you're the same. It's the same for me. I, I wouldn't have called anyone either, and I rarely ever did. It's because of our 
working model of other people or something or whatever. Yeah, so. We 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 think it doesn't. It's not like you were sitting there going, "Well, I'm not calling those fuckers. They don't care." No, You're, it just doesn't occur to you. We were what I call pathologically independent, and yeah. it's a uh, Stacy's like this too. I don't know if she wants me saying that. We're in the patron zone. <laughs> um, in that. When I moved, for example, from apartment to apartment, yeah. it wouldn't even occur to me to ask anyone to help me. Right. I, I, I moved one, from one home to another home in my Honda Civic. <laughs> I, did, I did literally like 35 <laughs> trips across town, you know, and uh, just, you know, over the course of a couple of days, just moved all my stuff from one place to another. And then I would have friends who'd be like, hey, I'm moving pizza and beer. You know, all You're day like, long. Yeah, and I'll be like, oh, okay. And there's like, I'm just remember like, <laughs> why doesn't that ever occur to me? Um, but anyway, so that will kick in to some extent even harder when we regress yeah. under stress. Yeah. It's like a cocooning of some kind of just yeah. like, you know. And also, I'll also say this of embarrassment. There's a oh, lot. Absolutely. There's a lot of embarrassment, not only about health anxiety, but also just about health related problems. You just don't want to be a burden on other people. And, right. And I, like, what was I going to like in my mind? I'm like, what am I going to say? Hey, Kirk, I'm, I might be having a heart attack. <laughs> yeah. It seemed monstrous to me. But it, <laughs> one, I'd be like worried. Right. But two, I'd be like. Do you have need, you thought of no I would just drive to wherever okay, you're at sure. and just be like yeah I wouldn't I you know I wouldn't demean your situation and say like Berto you're is, crazy I just I would just be like at the I very know. least I'll drive you so you're you don't so pass right. out I, you wouldn't pass out I on know. the way you you're know? so right and it's like I don't have a good reason. Like you said, yeah, you've actually and explained. You, and you also need an advocate when you're talking to physicians sure. especially when you're in a state like that yeah. who can kind of like retain the information because yeah. you're not retaining shit yeah. at, that, at that point I, I think you're absolutely right instead I felt so alone health anxiety pact I'll call health you, anxiety pact you unite call, us you, I'll call you you call me okay it's done hopefully it doesn't happen at the same time yes oh shit are you done yeah I'm done <laughs> no so so I felt this incredible sense of loneliness and I drove myself it must have been so so pathos looking like I'm driving myself and I'm just like focusing so hard. I'm like, hope I don't pass out. I just want to, you know, stay focused. And I go, got to the ER and you know, ERs, I had to wait like an hour and a half because you know, they, they checked me in and they made sure I wasn't dying. And then, so I had to wait like an hour and a half sitting there in the little chair, still feeling like shit, you know, cause I still have all the symptoms and it went in waves too. So finally they, they admit me and they run the test again. They do the EKG again. And again, it comes out uh, odd. And I'll explain why in a minute. And then they do another troponin test. And again, it comes out negative. And then they... they I, troponin I, is what for the listeners? So when the heart is failing, it uh, there is a, an enzyme that gets created that shows that you're having damage happening. And that's this troponin. Uh, there's more to the word to it. And so if, if you see a trace that's above a certain percentage or a certain amount, it could indicate something bad is happening. Uh, if it is there, it doesn't necessarily mean you're having a heart attack. If it's not there, it's really unlikely that you're having a heart attack. Was that reassuring at all at the time? Yes, it was. And that was reassuring the first one. It was more reassuring the second time. Okay. And then the the ER... So then what number are you? um, Well, by the way, sorry, to go back when they told me that I might be having a cardiac event, 10, 11, 12. Yeah. 
at the ER when they ran the second test and they told me it's negative. Oh, by the way, the anxiety waiting for it. And then just they say, okay, we got back the results from the troponin. I'm like, just get from the troponin test. And La La Land. Exactly. (laughs) And it looks like it is not. It looks fine. <laughs> Whatever. You know, it's like they, they delayed the answer so long. I was like, fuck. Okay. So at this point, the ER doctor who also checked my thyroid, TSH, to make sure, because I had mentioned that, and it was normal. The, the ER doctor said, look, I don't know what's happening. I can't tell you that, unfortunately. I can tell you it's, it's really unlikely that you're actually having a cardiac event. What I would say is... They, so, was they, that first doc just an idiot? No. Or were I think they that just they were saying being safe. safe? But the way they communicated it was terrible. And, and I found that out when I went to a cardiologist after the fact. But the, the ER doctor said, look, I, what I recommend is an outpatient visit to a cardiologist. You can make an appointment with the da-da-da-da. Because the EKG did come back odd. Like, uh, not odd, just like slightly anomalous. And there's an explanation. And... Um, However, I, I think this is it. So they checked me out, and that was it. And I left still feeling physically like crap, but with a little bit of reassurance that I wasn't dying. So what number are you now? It's probably back to a seven. Now, the, the catch is, so I had ruled out thyroid, and I got to be honest, I was sort of like not relieved by that because I thought, oh, God damn it, that would have been a great explanation. But it wasn't. So I was like, okay. So are you focusing on the heart rate thing? Has your heart rate returned to normal at No, this point? it was still low. Still like in the 50s? Still low. Yeah, still low. By the way, this is all my birthday. So I missed my birthday. I was going to have this nice dinner. I was going to I missed all that. Yeah. Didn't have anything. Sucks. But then Wednesday started. Oh, so that night. Oh, yeah. So by the way, we were slated to hang out on your birthday. Um, not. Yes, oh, yes, we were. Yes, we were supposed to go to a movie. Yeah. And yes. so you canceled it. I did. Saying that, that I was sick. I told you I was sick. Yeah. Yeah. You but I didn't. You could have said, I'm freaking out about you're right. all these kinds of things, I, by I, the way. I know. You're right. I, I should have. I should have. Yeah. I'm sorry. I, I don't apologize. Uh, I'm just saying, you know, don't be pathologically independent. Yeah. You deserve to have your problems yeah. vocalized to those around you. Fair enough. And so... On Wednesday, I made a realization. So Tuesday night, I slept a little more, but not that much. And on Wednesday morning, I felt a little better. But then the symptoms came back. And they would go in waves. But I started noticing that they would go in waves, and the waves were starting to get a little bit further apart. So that was interesting. And I noticed something else. Because I was really hungry. I went to have, um, on, on Tuesday, when I was hungry, I, I ate this, this power bar, this Lara bar. And... After I ate it, I felt weird again. Um, and on Wednesday, I was going to have another one because there was like one left. And I thought, okay, maybe there's something in this that's like I'm allergic to or something. And then I checked the expiration date. And keep in mind, these are like all natural. Like they have banana and apple. And they're, they're not cooked. They're raw ingredients. And they expired in September. And I was like, not September, coming September, last year September. Right. It, it, when would that mean it was made, do you think? I don't even know. Like, do you have any idea? Uh, probably uh, three months prior or something. Well, because that makes a difference, because if it was three months prior, then it's like, wow, it's like over twice its shelf life. It's f- 
But, yeah. but if it was made five years prior... Oh, yeah. No, w- probably not. Probably not five years prior. And then we don't know. But I will say, they're, they're, again, they're not cooked ingredients. It's not like a granola bar. You know, it's, yeah. it's fruit. Yeah. And this... It was, it was this Tacoma Target bastards. They were sitting out all these boxes. So I, I bought this box on Sunday, the Sunday before this happened. I had two bars that day. I even handed one out to a homeless person that I hope they weren't sick from this. Monday, I had one more bar. Tuesday, I had one more bar. And I was going to have the last one on Wednesday. Yeah. When I saw these things were expired, five months expired, I was like, oh, Okay, this might be something. Right. No proof. You know, I didn't get the bars tested or whatever. But I did check with other people that I was with on the weekend and stuff. And every other food that I had, someone else had had. And none of them had stomach symptoms. This was the one thing that I had had that happens to be expired. Yeah. I mean, it's, it's a good <clears throat> hypothesis. Again, good hypothesis. I'm not a physician. So, right. So, so with my doctor, when I finally went to my doctor, she theorized, she's like, look, I think you're definitely having a panic attack, like anxiety things. This is like um, Wednesday or Thursday? This is Wednesday. Okay. This is your regular this primary? This is my regular primary. She's like, yeah, I think you're having, um, or maybe it was Thursday. Yeah, I think it was Thursday. You're, you're definitely having anxiety. I, it is quite possible something triggered this. Uh, it could have been the bars. I don't know, maybe. But something triggered this because you seem to have stomach symptoms. And I hear your stomach. It's still gurgling a lot. In my stomach, by the way, it, it was not well. For seven days. But it was increasingly better, which also lends to like, there might be something there, right? Like some biological part. Totally. And the symptoms, the flushing and the cold symptoms, same thing. Like they kept coming in waves and every time the waves would be further apart and also a little less intense, a little less intense. Okay. So my doctor's thing was like, it's quite possible something physical triggered this, but then you're hormone system went into overdrive and your anxiety took over and a lot of things happened. And when I went to the cardiologist, because I made an, a cardiologist appointment to follow up, the cardiologist looked at me and said, okay, by the way, key point that I had forgotten in all this is uh, I had this very bad car crash at 18 where I was this passenger. I've talked about it in the podcast before and I nearly died. I literally nearly died. And I had a heart murmur as a result from that accident, meaning um, there's a slight... Um, thickening of part of the heart and when I was in the hospital back then they checked it out they kept me overnight an extra night just because of it but they finally concluded that well it's, it's there but it seems fine in 98 five years later my doctor at the time said yeah I definitely hear the murmur we should get it checked out I got an EKG and it came back a little odd so then she ordered an echocardiogram and they did this full thing and their conclusion was, yes, there's a slight irregularity. doesn't seem threatening. I think it's fine. Uh, you should get it. They Actually, they didn't even say anything. They said, it's fine. And so, again, 18, I'm 45. That was the last time you'd heard about it? And, and in, 98, uh, in 98 was the last time I heard about it. The how? accident was 93. Okay. So, uh, so five, 23. so 23. 23 was the last time I heard about it, but I knew about this. I just forgot yeah i think that's normal i i forget about things all the time too and so when the, it, it sucks that you forgot <laughs> yes because when the, the EKG came back i could have said raised my hand and said well i do have this thing you know whatever anyways when i went to the cardiologist the cardiologist said oh, okay okay look you i you can't diagnose someone from an ekg like and i'm very sorry that that's what they said to you 
uh, you shouldn't have had to have heard that. That's not the thing. Uh, however, we will do a new echocardiogram. I'll look at it. We'll talk about it. And there's three possibilities. One, there is something that we should address, and we'll talk about it. Two, there is something that we should keep an eye out and take an eye over time. Or three, it's nothing we should even care about. But until then, I don't want you to even think about this. So a this cardiologist, one, might be better because they tend to get a lot of panic attacky people Could be. in their office. I would venture to say half of the people in there are suffering from panic attacks, just, you know, in terms of research and anecdote. Yeah. Two, uh, this person just put it upon themselves to actually be good at it. Yeah. Because what a wonderful layout yeah. of like, I'm not worried immediately. No. Maybe this is, you know, a concern. Sorry. Yeah. Like, I'm not worried. We'll do a test. Yeah. And, and as I said... Or there's this other category of like, do don't worry about yeah, it. Yeah, exactly. And then what happened? Okay, so the test, I haven't done the test yet, the, the echocardiogram, oh, so yeah, we'll but, get to that. But, but, but by the way, hearing all that, like you said earlier, that was like so healthy, so healing. Yeah. Right? The tone of voice. Tone of voice. The eye contact. Eye contact. Maybe, you know, I even have this theory for myself when my physician, and I think there's research on this. That when my physician just listens to my heart and my lungs, you know, that very right. typical... Then you start going crazy. <laughs> well, no, this, this, that, this, that, you know, they put their warm hands oh, I see. on your skin. You know, chiropractor. I see. Uh, 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 what do you call it? Acupuncture. Uh, acupuncture. Uh, massage. Right. There is a, you know, an evolutionary advantage for this sort of healing, soothing, uh, balancing of physical aspects of your body when a heal a healer, the shaman, right. puts their hands on physically on your body and walks away going, I think you're okay. I think you're okay, yeah. You seem like you're doing... I just did that to myself. I just visualized... I felt my right. shoulders yeah, like, relax uh, a little bit. I did too. I thought you were going the other way, which was the whole white coat hypertension thing. So that can happen. Yeah. But I think <clears throat> it also can be that right. they can really soothe and us. And in my case, I'm lucky that I have a doctor that can do that. And this cardiologist was good. Also, the second ER doctor, because I didn't tell you, I went back to the ER the following Tuesday. Uh, because, so, oh... Silver lining, silver lining. My blood test came back, right? So the good news is my thyroid was totally fine. The heart, other heart little checks and stuff, they were fine because there's other hormones I can check. Well, um, but how are your midi-chlorians? Those are a little high, which means I have the force, so I got to watch <laughs> it. But there were three things that came back. And it was actually lucky that I got the tests because one is my vitamin D was super low. Surprise, surprise. At 14, it's minimum is 25, 14 is really low. Um, and I didn't know that vitamin D can help with focus. Mm. So I started, the doctor recommended uh, I take uh, vitamin D supplements. And I was taking, but very, very little. And she's like, no, 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 you need a lot more. <clears throat> so I started doing that. Within a few days of starting taking the supplement, either a combination of psychosomatic or, or actually the vitamin D doing something, um, my focus at work changed dramatically. Like I was able to sit and work on focused tasks indefinitely. And I had been having tremendous focus issues. And I thought it was just a matter of stress or who knows or whatever. 
That was one thing. The second thing, my cholesterol is high. So talk to the doctor. It's not high enough to be like, oh God, I got to get you on statins or anything like that. But it was high enough to where like, good that I found out. It's as high as it was three years ago when I got on a better regimen and I lowered it. So I'm like, oh shit, I should have already checked it before. Great. So, you know, I'm, I'm working on that. And the third thing uh, was uh, some hormone, DS, DS, DHEA-S was a little elevated. That one wasn't too concerning, but I need to recheck it because if it was constantly elevated, we would have to like follow up on it. So this led to me finding out a couple things, cholesterol and the vitamin D that I was like not aware of. And and the vitamin D at least immediately helped me. Yeah. So that was that was a good positive. So you're doing good now. Oh, I felt I felt so great the last yeah. two weeks. What was your anxiety level at that point? <clears throat> at when which part? When you I don't know, whatever point you're talking about right oh, now. Oh yeah. So when I got the blood test back and then I went back to the doctor, um Oh, sorry. Uh, one thing that the before that happened, what happened was over the weekend after that first thing, I thought I was getting better, and I was obviously I was getting better. And then Monday, I was feeling pretty good, so I was like, okay, I think this is gone. But Tuesday, this was a week later, on my way to work, I had what basically was a, an anxiety attack. But in the moment, I still was unsure. So I pulled the car over and I did my breathing and I kept telling myself like, this is, this is anxiety. I walked out to go start walking towards work and because, you know, the, the Kleenex factory is uphill. So I had to like start walking uphill and I immediately felt like, oh shit, my legs feel heavy. I I don't, I think if I start walking, I'm going to, my heart, like something bad's going to happen. You're going to faint. Yeah. So I got back in my car and I waited and I, and I came up with a strategy. I was like, okay, I'm going to drive myself to the other ER, the, the better one. And I'm not going to go in yet. I'm going to work because they have Wi-Fi, and I can like talk about the, the cleaning strategies for next week. So I'll do that. From the parking lot? Uh, actually from the waiting area, like before you check yourself in. If I feel bad later, I'll go in. So I did that and I worked till noon and I was feeling a little better and then I started feeling bad again. So I said, screw it. And I went in. And the ER doctor there was very good with anxiety. They checked me in. They heard my whole spiel. So at this point in your notes from your previous doctor was panic attack written all over it, right? Right. And so this person maybe looked at your notes, hopefully did, and said, okay, I know what to do. They didn't have a chance to look at the notes because at first, when they first triage, like... So this person just knew... Well, because the things I was saying initially are definitely concerning, right? Oh, I've had this thing, da-da-da-da-da. So they they first started taking my blood pressure. They brought in the machines, which started getting me anxious because everyone was gathering around ready for a heart attack or something. My blood pressure was high, higher than normal. How high was it? uh, Like 176 over 92 or something. Yeah, that's not... um, I've had higher than that. Okay, mine is never higher than that. Oh, so I, this was I've had higher than okay. that. Okay, but then the the doctor knew me. Like the not ER that it doctor. doesn't freak me out, but it, it's not uncommon. No, right, especially in a and panic especially attack in that situation. Yeah. So then the doctor, I think, caught on, and then all the machines went away, and then he he was so nice. 
He wasn't condescending. Did he look at your notes? Like, how did he know nothing was wrong? Oh, because I, I was describing everything, and he kept asking me questions. And as he was asking me questions, he started piecing it together. Like, you, you were like, well, my blah, blah, blah was and low. Da, 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 and then I, and I, I, I did mention anxiety. I did mention anxiety. Okay. All these things. And then he told me, and then he said, look, I totally get it. And, and, and he was so kind. And he was like, this is, this is hard. It's very hard because it feels real and all these things. Um, I've, based on everything I'm seeing, like you, you're one of the healthiest patients I have. <laughs> um, and then like Batman with Robin, he just backhanded you and said, knock it off. Knock it off. He actually said, he did a few things. First of all, he te- tentatively prescribed me a few things based on um, the thing. Basically, I need to go check with my doctor to confirm that. One of them was uh, a statin for the cholesterol. But he said, you might not need this just like if you're concerned about it. This he gave me an anxiety prescription. Uh, I forget uh, Va- Va- Valium or something. One of those. Ativan? Valium? I think it was Valium. Uh, Lorazepam? Something. Xanax? And, and, and then he gave me... Uh, and then he gave me a card and an information for this meditation place that focuses on anxiety and all these kind of things. Wow, and I was so like, he wow. must talk with a lot of people about that. Yeah. Because if he's got yeah, that, ready right? to go, yeah. And I was like, so anyway, so I left the ER and that, that was the final cure for this episode. Like, when I left that mo- that day, it was like probably, it was a quick visit. That was the last time I felt any of the symptoms. Have you taken, I'm glad, by the way, um, have you taken the Valium? No, I, I talked to my doctor, and I think I mentioned this to you. So what we agreed on was this. First of all, she had a different one that she, she prefers. So she said, I could write you this prescription. We agreed, we agreed on the following. First, I would start on the vitamin D right away. Second, I would make the appointment with the cardiologist to follow up on that, which I did. Uh, third... Uh, in a few weeks, we would recheck that one hormone. Okay. I'm not so, hearing anything about anxiety. Right. And, and, and fourth, if I was still feeling the symptoms, she would prescribe me the, the anxiety. How, looking back, uh, she, one, so do you have the pills? No. You need the pills, Berto. Like, you need those uh, pills. I can get them. Get them. Because even if you are having some kind of cardiac event, you're not helping yourself by being freaking, also anxious. <laughs> right. And yeah. it's possible, you know, and likely in the future that if this happens again, it is anxiety. Right. So without those pills on hand, you know, you're a few days away from getting those pills. Fair you need, enough. You need that. And the pill isn't going to do anything. Yeah. It's not going to make it worse. Yeah. It just, Fair enough. It, so, so you need those pills. Um, you need it, you know, you're, uh, this is me trying to care for you. I'm not sure. barking at you or my barking, it's caring barking, <laughs> is you're doing what you frequently do, I'm guessing, which is, okay, medical solution, get on top of this, vitamin D, watch <laughs> my weight, you know, cholesterol, I got to focus to fuck on this health stuff. Okay, it's fine, it's nothing wrong with that. <laughs> but unless you have an approach to solving the panic, it's going to happen again. Right. So I can definitely get the pills. I- the other thing, obviously, is the meditation and yeah. the awareness. Uh, I know you know about your panic, but a deeper understanding of your panic, a deeper way of, a more effective way of uh, alleviating your symptoms that doesn't involve isolating yourself in your car, for yeah. example. Yeah, but p- part of the challenge is that this was a new one for me because 
my other than my first panic attack, which was not like this, it was very different. Uh, what I had s- experienced throughout the years were momentary moments of of panic, anxiety, right? Where I'd be in a meeting, and then all of a sudden, I'd feel like something in my body. And what I had learned to do, and it used to happen a lot more, is I would straighten myself up, kind of like prop myself up, take a deep breath, and 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 t- start having the conversation. And then it would dissipate, right? And that was usually what happened. Um, a few years ago, I had a thing where I was on a business trip, and I was I was going to bed, and it was you know at night, and all of a sudden I felt like what I felt something in my chest or, or stomach jumping, <laughs> and I thought, oh fuck, I'm having a heart attack, right? But what I found out is like, no, 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 that's like a stomach spasm that can happen sometimes when you have like acid or when you have something that might turn into an ulcer or something. I said nothing to do with that. And so at the time, I remember feeling for a few days like panicky feelings, you know. So I had stuff like that. What then was different you- this time was like uh, over 24 hours, like yeah. multiple days yeah. of weird shit, uh, you uh, know? Uh, well... Of physical symptoms that your brain locked onto as yeah. as dangerous, which we'll right. get into, but and that that was y- new to me. Yeah, and granted, I get that, but in the future, it's gonna morph into something else. There's sure. there's gonna you're, the next time you have this, you're gonna say to me, "But Kirk, this time it was different," <laughs> and I'm gonna be like, "Dude." You know, it'll always be different every time. You and know, that's fair. Your what, body will figure right. out a new way to freak out about Which a new situation. Which is why I'm saying I'll, I'll listen to you and I'll, and I'll get I'll talk to my doctor so, about the so, prescription. So to be specific, uh, for and I understand the ret, the reticence. Uh, I have it too. I the resistance. I but in the past, I don't know, couple years or I don't know, maybe longer. I you know I take a benzo once every six months or something. But when I take it. Um, it really takes the edge off, yeah. you know, and it makes it so that it doesn't make it so that I don't seek help if I need help. Yeah. But what it tells me is in the moment, it's like, okay, something's happening. I'm freaking out. I'm really going to freak out. I, I got to call the nurse. I got to go to the ER or whatever. Right. I pop the benzo. Um, now I can think straight. Yeah. Now I can be like, okay, what's happening? Yeah. <laughs> uh, and it all put it puts everything in perspective, you know. On one level, it's like, well, okay, Kirk, you know deep down that the likelihood that you're dying right now is pretty low. So you know there's a chance, but it's pretty low, sure. and this can wait till tomorrow because that's often what it is. It's like a nighttime freakout for me, anyway. It had, but that that's the other thing is this. I never, never had a thing extend into the day. Yeah. Ever. Yeah. And so, which is why, and if I if I interpreted it, it's because the symptoms, the physical symptoms that were unexplained, were in a class of that of of symptoms that were uh, triggering to you. Yes, yes, and they didn't go away. Yes, that's exactly it. And you had multiple ways of monitoring it with your Apple Watch, and and by the way, I absolutely everything's right. For example, if what I had had been having is a knee pain. I might still have triggered anxiety and hypochondriac and all these things, but it would have been very different. Even if the knee pain was really severe, yeah. it was that it was 
It's in this your torso. Torso and f- extremities and body. Like, my whole body's involved in it. And a weird heart rate. Weird, weird heart rate. Yeah. And then the ER doctor or the clinic doctor saying I might be dying, you know. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So, it was the perfect storm for an anxiety person. Right. Yeah. And so... Which is why I'm not trying to minimize your advice at all, and I'm going to take it. What I was trying to say was just... So... I thought, because of for years I've been able to manage what I had been experienced... Yeah. I thought that I, I could handle if if things happened. Yeah, and that's not a bad yeah. assumption, but apparently not true. And yeah. Yeah. if you had prepared, you would have been better off, and it doesn't hurt to prepare more yeah. rigorously. As we talk about health anxiety, we can both, for ourselves, talk about how we're going to prepare in the off-season, so to speak. Okay, so definition There are many terms for health anxiety. We've already said some of them, health anxiety being one, hypochondriasis, hypochondria, somatic symptom disorder, illness anxiety disorder, psychogenic illness. Um, These are all just terms that are slightly different but um, are related. So the definition, um, I developed a definition based on all the the literature and the research, and it's the following. And it's a, a very long one because I feel like it needs it, and... Uh, it is a compilation of everything that needs to be included. None of the definitions or even the diagnoses fully encapsulate what I think it needs to, but anyway. So the first sentence of my definition is excessive obsessional fear of having or acquiring a serious medical condition. So that's very succinct. Yep. Excessive fear, obsessional fear. So it's excessive. The freak out is big, but it's also obsessional in that you know it it's persistent, intrusive thought about it, even when we're not trying to think about it, of having a medical serious medical condition or acquiring one. And the second sentence is much longer. Uh, it's just a list, basically. The fear can manifest in the following eleven ways, um, and usually it's a combination of several of these. One, preoccupation with possible illnesses. Two, hypersensitivity to bodily sensations. Lots of attention spent on bodily sensations. This was something that I hadn't really known in my bones the way I do now. That, and we'll get into this more later, is just how critical that is. It's like, it's almost like a personality trait. That some people are hypersensitive to their bodily sensation, yeah. and some people aren't. And, and you know, like, some people will have all the symptoms you had, yeah. and they don't even really notice it. Right. And that's interesting, because yeah. you think, how could you not notice it? You know? Right. But some people don't. They're just like, I don't know, I just, it just doesn't, you know, if, you, if they stop and focus their attention, they're like, oh, yeah, I guess, I guess <laughs> that is happening to me, but I, yeah. I guess I don't really think about it. Three catastrophic misinterpretation of bodily sensations. This is all true for both of us so far, right? right? Four, conviction to distorted narratives. This isn't always true, sure, but it is often true. A conviction yeah. to the distorted narrative. Like, for example, I was pretty sure my thyroid had gone kaput. Right. Even though there was zero evidence of that yeah. and not likely, you know what I mean? Possible, but yeah. you're just like, no, 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 this is it. Extremely convinced in the in the face of opposing evidence um, or discussions of usefulness of the thoughts. So, in other words, sometimes you know we don't know. You know, like you could be con- you could be convinced I'm going to get cancer and I'm going to die, 
or I'm going to have a heart attack, I'm going to die. Well, medically, it's possible, you know, but it's not helpful to to be, you know, convinced it's going to happen right now. Number five, psychogenic symptoms. Not always, but often. Number six, unhelpful coping behavior. So otherwise known as safety behaviors, like going on the Internet, checking your body, going to to the physician. Research shows that this maintains or even exacerbates the health anxiety uh, for, for, you know, a long time. Seven, transient relief from coping behavior. So the relief to the anxiety is transient. The illness conviction returns quickly. Eight, excessive care seeking or avoidance of care seeking. So there's two types. Mm. There are people who avoid care seeking because they're like, I don't want to know. Right. And then there's people who excessively care seek. I'm not going to pathologize the care seeking. You know, sure. I, it's a good idea. You did all those things. Uh, but because it did help in the end. And if you hadn't done those things, you'd still be freaking out today. But it is one of the symptoms. Yeah. Nine, high levels of psychological distress. Ten, increased risk of psychiatric comorbidity, meaning other um, issues like other mood disorders or anxiety disorders are frequent to accompany this or to just be, mm. you know, or be caused by it. And number 11, functional impairment for the individual. For example, right. can't work right. like you couldn't work, um, compromised parenting, substance abuse, this kind of thing. All right. So that's my definition. Reddit. This is a story from Reddit. I have, I have really bad health anxiety, of course, so I always worry about myself having health issues or dying, but I also spend a lot of time worrying about people close to me dying. Oh, interesting. Like, lately, I've had this bad feeling that my boyfriend is going to die. Oh. I know it's incredibly irrational as he is a healthy 26-year-old, but, oh, I just, but I just can't shake the feeling. I would be so devastated if something happened to him because he is my soulmate, and I know I would never find a love like this again. I worry about the same thing with my mom. She is my rock, and if, and if anything ever happened to her, I'd be completely lost. So for some people, the health anxiety extends to other, to pe- others, yeah. to other people, which I'll get into later in terms of risk factors, but a preview is that attachment issues are related to health anxiety. So uh. when we feel alone... It tends to create a health things. It creates the opportunity for various anxieties, including health anxiety. In that, to die or to be sick is to be the ultimate aloneness, mm. the ultimate isolation, because yeah. you're you're being separated from everyone you love. Or for someone to die close to you is, right. is for them to be taken away from you. And well, so, I see that. so it's kind of gets mixed up there all right so dsm-5 it's it's now in the chapter called somatic symptom and related related disorders it's a small chapter it's in the same chapter as conversion disorder which is psychogenic illnesses or factitious disorder which is the old um uh munchausen by proxy oh okay so there are two main dsm labels these days for what we would call health anxiety or hypochondria number one is somatic symptom disorder, and number two is illness anxiety disorder. Um, I won't go into the specifics, but essentially somatic symptom disorder is essentially they have excessive health anxiety about an actual physical symptom. So so you could have qualified for this in the moment. Mm-hmm. Um, and it can be kind of short term. You can actually have it you know, in that very yeah. short term span of time. 
the the physical symptom can be medically explained or maybe not. Like right. if you have a pain somewhere or a sensation that yeah. the physicians can't really explain. Like mine wasn't really explained. Like I'll never really know what exactly of anything right. was triggering this. But, you know, it could be mildly explained by yeah. the food poisoning. Right. Um and the symptom could be considered psychogenic or not. So essentially you have someone who has a somatic symptom of some kind, could be psychogenic, maybe it's maybe it is, maybe it isn't. Maybe even so in your situation you would have qualified for somatic symptom disorder. For other people say they actually do have cancer. Right. But the physicians are like, You're not gonna die. You know, we're doing every you know, the chance of of you having a problem, or say you had a uh, a heart attack not too long ago, yeah. and the physicians are like, you know, you're okay. The chances yeah. of you having another one's pretty low, but you start to have a psychogenic right. feeling in your chest, and then you have this massive problem of anxiety. Prevalence it, it's slightly higher for females, but plenty of men suffer from this, and it's about six percent of adults suffer from this disorder. Wow. The other one is what we call illness anxiety disorder. And essentially, I'm not going to go into all the details, but essentially, it's high health anxiety, but without somatic symptoms or with mild symptoms. Yeah. So this is kind of like what I have, which is, and it tends to be more ongoing. It tends to not be like acute and severe. It tends to be like something that you just kind of, it's like OCD in a sense. And that's what it is for me because, you know, I'll feel a slight tickle in my throat that pretty mild like whenever i describe it to physicians you know like i'll be like so you know i have this problem they'll be you know well describe it i'll be like well it's kind of like and they'll be like so how often do you feel i'll be like well i don't know maybe every now and then and how intense is it uh it's kind of it's barely perceptible (laughs) you know i can just see them in their brain going what are you you're like huh like like you could be talking about any number (laughs) of normal kinds of bodily sensations and Which is like with me and the appendicitis and the hernias. Right. So you you might have no symptoms and convinced that something bad is going to happen, or you just have a mild kind of tickle here and there, yeah. a normal bodily sensation that's pretty mild. And, you know, you don't have stomach gurgling. You don't have right. low uh, heart rate. You right. don't have the flushing. Um, and yet you still are pretty convinced you're dying. Um, these people... Uh, interestingly, in comparison to somatic symptom disorder, illness, anxiety disorder, these people, on average, tend to have more insight. They tend to know that there's something wrong with their brain mm. on this. Uh, people with somatic symptom disorder tend to be more distorted and, and convinced sure. that something's wrong. Because you might be having this reinforcing function of like, well, I do feel something. <laughs> right, exactly. Uh, and I also think that when someone's anxiety is more intense, in my experience clinically, they, you know, we have this term called undifferentiated, which essentially means like mentally stable or something. And the more unstable you are, I think the more likely you are to have a psychogenic uh, a symptom. Mm-hmm. You know, the more likely you are to have an intense psychogenic symptom, sure. like where your legs go numb or you go blind, or, uh, you know, you're weak and you can't get out of bed, even though there's no medical explanation for it. Right. So the more, you know, the more you're suffering deep in your personality, 
the more likely you are, are to have these like very real physical symptoms, which starts to qualify you for the somatic symptom disorder. Sure. Whereas, you know, more differentiated people, illness, anxiety disorder uh, tends to happen because it's like you're not li- your anxiety isn't so deep ingrained that you're going to have a psychogenic uh, symptom emerge. And thus, you also have some insight into it. You can kind of reflect on yourself and say, yeah, I'm pretty sure this is me just freaking out. So I would say you also have this, you know, you have this uh, in a general sense. And then for a week, you had somatic symptom disorder. Yeah. So right. with, this is when you need to have it for like six months. It, you know, it's one of those things that um, if you just have for a few days, you won't qualify for the diagnosis. Right. right. Same prevalence, about 6% of adults, no gender difference, though. Um, age onset is usually during adult, early adulthood, which is interesting. So most people, which was true for me. And it was think, true for me. Yeah. So to be clear, uh, we don't have labels in the DSM for health anxiety, and we no longer have labels hypochondriasis or hypochondriac. Those, those are older. I have older, a question. Older, older did, when you were growing up, did you see, were you around sick people often not really because the thing that i've asked myself like where does this come from and obviously there's two obvious things for me one of them is that my dad was a doctor but not only that he was always kind of obsessing about things and stuff but the other thing was that i did grow up in a household with three elderly people my grandma my grandpa and and my grandma's sister and you were terrified to lose them I was terrified to lose them. And I saw, in real terms, my grandpa's health decline terribly. Him uh, him also getting sick often in addition to the health decline. Uh, I had bad coughs and colds constantly. Uh, my doctors theorized because I, I was in a smoking household, so that could have... But whatever the case may be, I was constantly getting sick. Hmm. I also had... These horrible earaches when I was a kid, and they had to do a, a t- tonsillectomy, remove my tonsils. And so I feel that was probably traumatizing to an extent. Right. Because it's such pain, such pain. I remember being in the car, they're taking me to the clinic, and I was just in such pain. So I think that, and then I had this horrible accident where I nearly died. Yeah. So when you add all these things up together, yeah. I'm like, no wonder I'm freaking. Right. So we're going to go into that and that, you know, we're going to go into what the research shows because there is research on this a lot. In the ICD-11, which is the counterpart to the DSM-5, they call it bodily distress disorder. And I kind of like the ICD-11 description better because for me to differentiate between somatic symptom disorder and illness anxiety disorder seems kind of weird because they're so similar. And for some people, you would qualify for both. And why, why do we need both? Why don't we just call it one big thing, which is what the ICD does? Differential diagnoses are an actual medical condition that is hard to figure out. You could suffer from panic disorder, um, you know, as you pointed out, I think, uh, panic is very similar to somatic symptom disorder in that it's a misinterpretation of a bodily sensation that results in anxiety. And for us to diagnose you on that Wednesday or Tuesday, one could make a pretty good argument you were having panic disorder and another could make a pretty good argument that the primary diagnosis was somatic symptom disorder. Sure. And both would be right. Other differentials, generalized anxiety disorder, OCD, depressive disorder, conversion disorder, delusional disorder. 
So you could have delusional disorder and have what appears to be somatic symptom disorder because you're you're delu- you're, you're generally delusional, and one of your delusions happens to be that you're dying or something. Right. Facebook, Jamie says, after my stepfather died of stomach cancer, I was convinced I had lung cancer oh. because I couldn't breathe. It was, oh. a, it was a panic attack, not cancer, in fact. In the past, I've, had, I, I, I've been hypervigilant with diet and exercise in an effort to stay free of disease. With therapy, I have relaxed a bit, so seemingly still kind of suffering. Okay, so before we get to some of the other things, I want to talk about the common physical symptoms that is associated with health anxiety. So there are four different categories. Number one, the first category is cardiopulmonary symptoms. So heart pounding. So I get that sometimes. Sometimes. So in other words, the person with health anxiety will com- will go to the ER complaining of heart pounding. Right. Like palpitations, kind of, or something. Palpitations, include, okay. yeah. Uh, chest pain. Uh, so tell me if you've had any of these. I'm having all of them right now. <laughs> uh, breathlessness without exertion. Um, it, it's more of um, what I have had thinking that I'm that I'm not gonna that I'm stopping breathing while I'm trying to fall asleep. Okay, hyperventilation. Like, yeah, like, especially when I had the panic attack. Okay. Hot or cold sweats? Yes. Dry mouth? Yes. Interesting. So I've had the heart pounding, for sure. I, I've had maybe mild chest pains, but for whatever reason, the amount of medical education I've had about heart attacks hasn't gotten into my brain. Like, I don't, I don't worry about heart attacks. Yeah. Also, they don't run in my family. Sure. And so it's not... It, it, I guess I figure it's not likely. So you're like, oh, but it might be something else. <laughs> yeah. I, I, well, again, so lately for me, it's been this, what I would call that cliff of uncertain doom. Oh, okay. Where, because if I really walk myself, like if I'm laying down, it, it's midnight, I'm trying to fall asleep, I feel a little tickle in my throat, and I'm like, what is that, you know? Should you go to the doctor? You know, you should have gone to the doctor a long time ago. How come you've been avoiding that? You know, is it gastric reflux? If it is, you're fucked because you're following all the things you're supposed to be doing and you're still, still have, happening. You're still having it. Yeah. And you're going to have it tonight when you fall asleep. Ah. When you fall asleep tonight, all that acid is going to come up your throat ah. it's, and it's going to get into your lungs ah. and you're going to have lung cancer. By the way, that happened to me with snoring years ago. Um, I... Didn't realize, uh, but I probably started snoring in my 20s. Um, I never knew why I would wake up like with a dry mouth and sore throat in the morning. I'm like, what's going on? And it was a combination of reflux and snoring. But I never knew. Years went by. And then in my 30s, one time I was like, I forget what it was. And like, someone was like, oh, yeah, man, you're snoring pretty I'm like, what do you mean I was snoring? Yeah, you're, I'm like, I snore? I'm like, what the fuck? Then I started reading about it. Oh, God. It's like, oh, sleep apnea. You can die in your sleep. You can do all these things. You get the brain this, brain that. I'm like, ah! So then I got really freaked out, and I would hate going to sleep for a while. Yeah. And then I did ended up doing a sleep study and all these things, and then I started changing my sleep habits. So, But for a bit, I was really worried. Right. And I didn't want to go to sleep. Yeah, I'm kind of in that zone right now, and it's, uh, yeah, I mean... Uh, the answer is to get medical attention yeah. and to 
find out the skinny, if you will. The second category here is musculoskeletal symptoms. Pains in arms or legs. Right. Have you had that? Yeah, definitely. Muscu- uh, muscular aches and pains. Although I will say, uh, so I, leg pains that I've had, uh, I usually attribute, like for some reason, my mind automatically attributes them to non Health. Panicky things. Okay. More like uh, sore because I ran or things like that. But whenever I do have any arm stuff, that's a little concerning because it's the whole like, oh, if your left arm's hurting, you might be. Right. So I'm like, oh, shit. Is that it? Is this the big one? Right. <laughs> <laughs> I'm coming, Louise, or <laughs> what, what was that? This Red, is the big one. Red Fox would yeah. say on Sands, for instance. Yeah. Um, uh, pains in the <laughs> joints, localized weakness. Do you ever have that? Localized weakness. What does that mean? Like your hand goes weak. No. <clears throat> uh, backache. Yeah. But does your health anxiety manifest from that? No. <laughs> uh, pain moving from one place to another. No. Un- My- unpleasant numbness or tingling. Uh, yeah, a little bit. Does that trigger your anxiety? Yes. Gastrointestinal symptoms. Yes. Uh, ab- a billion percent. So this is our third category. Abdominal pains. Yes. Diarrhea. Yes. Feeling bloated. Yes. Nausea. <laughs> Not so much. Regurgitation. Yes. Burning sensation in the yes. chest. So those all trigger your... I think the biggest trigger for me historically has been gastric stuff. And then the fourth category is general symptoms, concentration difficulties. What? <laughs> excessive fatigue, headache, impairment of memory and dizziness. Not on the fatigue. Yes, on the concentration. Not on the headaches. What was the last one? Dizziness. No. Memory. Yeah. So it's interesting. Maybe. When I was reading this list, I was like, you know, I know this, but when I read the research and I found this list, I was like, yeah, it, it, this is one of those moments as I'm doing the notes where I was like, man, to see it in black and white like that really just makes me realize in deeper down in my psyche that. I'm at, I'm in no danger. <laughs> yeah. I am I am ex- in the same way when I learned about the symptoms of panic and I was mm. like, "Holy shit, how did you know me?" I'm reading the DSM, I'm like, "How do you know me so well?" Right. And when I was reading this, I was like, "How do you know me?" And then I think, "Wow. Uh I'm not alone. It's researched, it's documented, the heart pounding, the chest pain, the uh you know, the sort of regurgitations or whatever, the concentration difficulties, those are my things that will trigger me. And it's like the next time it happens and it's happened since I'm like, you're on the list, (laughs) you know, you're, you're not outside the list yet. (laughs) You know what I mean? Now, again, there could be actually things wrong. Historically, there never has been (laughs) with me anyway. Um, so there's another thing called mental hypochondriasis that I want to mention. This is fear of getting a mental disorder like schizophrenia. Years ago, a listener emailed me. This is back when every email I got was exciting because oh. <laughs> I would only get like one email a month, sure. if that. Sure. And, I'm, and maybe the guy's still listening, but he emailed and said that he was had health anxiety around getting schizophrenia. Wow. You know, he'd be like, yeah, like every once in a while, like I'll – I'll kind of hear something and I'll, and I sort of asked him over the, you know, over emails, like, so what's it like? And it, I, it, I was like, that's everyone experiences those symptoms. So 
you know, there's a chance that you could develop schizophrenia, but it's oh, you're, wow. you're at no greater chance than any, anyone else. And what I told him was, if it happens, you won't know what's happening. So <laughs> th- there's no point in being hypervigilant, you know right. what I mean? Because there's nothing you can do about it. You know, it's a biological condition that right. you can't avoid if it's if your number is up. Your yeah. number. Anyway, I don't know if that helped him. But. By the way, um, <clears throat> I was also recently having tinnitus. Yeah. Turns out vitamin D deficiency can cause tinnitus. And it went away? Yeah. So for me, man, I've been having tinnitus uh, because of being in a band. Sure. No, I mean, I, I always have like, I've always had a little resting tinnitus. You can also get it from anxiety because your high blood pressure goes up and then okay. the, the blood rushes through your ears. I can imagine. Oh, yes. I've heard of that one too. This was definitely like high pitch and I started thinking, oh, shit. My, I did, but I, I was like, I, I couldn't tie it to a recent concert or something. I'm like, so sucks. it was higher than normal. Yeah, I yeah. was like, God damn it, I got tinnitus, yeah. and I kept thinking, oh, there were some days I started searching all over my house because I'm like, no, something, something's buzzing, like something's. Oh my god! And I and I like turned everything off. I'm like, shit! And then I even installed apps that can listen for for high pitched, and it's like nothing. I'm like, wow! I'm like, I got fucking tinnitus, and then after I started taking the vitamin D supplements, it started quieting back down nice. to the normal tinnitus level yeah. like right now i can hear my tinnitus <laughs> can you hear yours yes maybe i have maybe mine's more intense than yours uh reddit this person says fear of cardiac arrest i have fear of sudden cardiac arrest this fear started about four months ago when i started getting shortness of breath and heart palpitations i've had a halter monitor done and to my What's that? Uh, like a, a chest, oh, okay. chest monitor. Uh, and to my surprise, they said I basically had no palpitations and my echocardiogram essentially came back good. But over the past few months, I've been afraid of sudden cardiac arrest and have been avoiding running. Oh, man. I have gone for a run. I haven't gone for a run in months and really want to, but I am still kind of afraid to. So this is actually a common thing yeah. for help, people with health anxiety is that with the heart thing yeah. is that when they go on runs or they do a kind of, any kind of uh, exertion, yeah. your heart starts to you know you pick up its pace because it's trying to get oxygen out to all your yep. things, your body. And for most people uh, who don't suffer from health anxiety, they don't even notice that their heart that their heart is. Is, right. is picking up the pace. They, they just, you know, it's, if they focused on it, they could feel it, but people don't focus on it. For people with health anxiety, for whatever reason, they're, they're hypervigilant with their focus or whatever. They have more neurons that notice such a thing. They're sensitive to it. They really notice their heart pounding. And again, if they have a cognition, an automatic thought, a schema around right. that equals death, um, then, you know, that'll be a problem. Uh, has that ever been a problem for you? Well, it recently was, and it has been because when you exercise, though, uh, yeah, actually, I've I've been on runs before, where especially like at the start of a run, it doesn't happen that frequently. But I, I do remember where I would start, and then all of a sudden, I'd feel something, and I'm like, oh, and then I'm like, okay, right, and then I'm so, like, okay, maybe it's just anxiety. <laughs> so okay, good. So for someone else, one they won't notice it, or if they do. It it's just like, well, I don't know what the fuck that was, you know. There's just some that I think that's helpful for me yeah. anyway, and I think for a lot of people out there, is that 
to know that the fact, you know, because we'll feel these sensations and we're like, I don't know anyone else who talks about this. Right. So I must be having a heart attack. <laughs> I must be the only one who does that or right. has this feeling. But the larger possibility, you know, who knows, but commonly for people with health anxiety is everyone is having that physical experience, but you're the, in the rare class of people, the five to 10% of people who really notice it because you're very focused on it or you're very sensitive to it. Yeah. And then you misinterpret it as a sign of danger. I, I, one thing I have noticed throughout the years is I assume, you know, historically I assume like, yeah, you know, people normally feel at homeostasis, you know, they're fine. But then I'll talk to people and that probably don't suffer from anxiety or whatever, but I'll talk to them and I'm like, how's it going? And they're like, oh, pretty good. And but then when you dive in a little bit, it's like, oh yeah. I mean, I've I've been like terrible chronic back pain for the last two years, and then now I'm not even sure I can go back to work. And like, wait, wait, what? Right. Or they'll be like, like one of my relatives was literally like, um, yeah, just uh, my leg was in such pain. It got to a point where where I was thinking the doctors were thinking that they might have to actually amputate. I was getting like pre-diabetes, all these things. I'm like, wait, what? Yeah. Let alone little palpitation, you know, right. issues, little right. little heart right. uh, anomalies when they're running. So there's people that deal with actual, and a lot of them, with actual but I think your ongoing overall, things. Your overall point is like, people don't even talk about the big things, right. let alone the let small, alone things. small things. And so I think that's important to note, yeah. is that just because you haven't heard of other people suffering in this way, or people having this sensation, yeah. doesn't mean that it's super mundane yeah like another thing that people will focus on is when they're you know have you ever had your heart skip a beat it kind of goes i'm sure it has oh yeah yeah sure yeah it's like a you know you feel it kind of trip on itself um for some people that will really trigger their health anxiety which makes sense right but but uh people experience that all the time and but no one raises their hand and says like i just had one of those things and if they did (laughs) you'd be like oh my god it happened you know doctor (laughs) like you know 10 percent of people if they focus on it, have that in a daily yeah. basis. So assessment. There's a lot of different assessment measures. Um, the, the, the golden standard is the illness anxiety scales. They measure four different uh, areas. Illness fear, so like how intense your fear is. Uh-huh. Illness beliefs, meaning how you, you know, what beliefs sort of are at the core of the fear. Safety behavior, like going to the uh, physician, monitoring, paying attention, uh, and disruptive effects. So kind of the outcome of all that. So the illness anxiety scales is a self-report measure you can just sort of give to people as a way of of checking in. There's also the health anxiety inventory inventory and the Whiteley Index. And then, but for full-on uh, d- uh, assessment, when you really want to get into the nitty-gritty with people, the golden standards is the childhood illness attitude scales mm. um, for children and adolescents. Sorry, um, no, sorry, scratch that. That's the scales. That's the self-report for that. The diagnostic is, is the schedules for clinical assessment of neuropsychiatry. 
the structured clinical interview of DSM disorders, the, com- the composite international diagnostic interview, and the hypochondriasis yell brown obsessive compulsive scale, which is specific to hypochondriasis. The hypochondriasis yell brown obsessive compulsive scale, or the HYBOCS. <laughs> um, so let's. But I found one online, and Easy this to is say. this is of course not uh, you know standardized, but it's short, and I thought I'd ask you. And I did this earlier, and I have okay. I have my score, and we can, can compare scores, and we'll see who wins. Yeah. Who wins? Competition. Who's fucked up more? <laughs> Number one, um, four four options. Okay. So try to remember and as and and just say one, two, three, or four as I read these. Um, you, you'll understand. Yeah. I do not worry about my health. I occasionally worry about my health. I spend too much time worrying about my health. I spend most of my time worrying about my health. I would say three. I spend much of my time. I notice aches and pains less than most other people of my age. I notice aches and pains as much as other people my age. I notice aches and pains more than most people my age. I am aware of aches and pains in my body all the time. I might go four on this one. (laughs) Okay. As a rule, I am not aware of my bodily sensations. Sometimes I'm aware of my bodily sensations or changes. I am often aware of bodily sensation or changes. I am constantly... Constantly. Four. Okay. Okay. Resisting thoughts of illness is never a problem. Most of the time, I can resist thoughts of illness. I try to resist thoughts of illness, but I am often unable to do so. Thoughts of illness are so strong that I no longer even try to resist them. Three. Okay. As a rule, I am not afraid that I have a serious illness. I am sometimes afraid that I have a serious illness. I am often afraid that I have a serious illness. I am always afraid that I have a serious illness. Two. Oh, okay. I do not have images of myself being ill. I occasionally have images of myself being ill. I frequently have images of myself being ill. I constantly have images of myself. Images. That's an interesting like, one. you know, visuals. Visuals. Um, what is uh, I guess two. Okay. I occasionally... I do not have any difficulty taking my mind off thoughts about my health. I sometimes have difficulty. I often have difficulty in taking my mind off thoughts about my health. Nothing can take my mind off thoughts about my health. Three. I am lastingly relieved if my doctor tells me that nothing is wrong. I am initially relieved, but my worries sometimes return later. I am initially relieved, but the worries always return later. I am not relieved if my doctor tells me there's nothing wrong. Two. If I hear about an illness, I never think I have it myself. If I hear an illness, I sometimes think I have it myself. If I hear about an illness, I often think I have it myself. If I hear about an illness, I always think I have it myself. I mean, I, jokingly, I would say three, but realistically, it's probably a two because there are many categories of illnesses that right. I won't think I have, right. but definitely some. <laughs> I, if I have a bodily sensation or change, I rarely wonder what it means. I often wonder what it means. I always wonder what it means. I must know what it means. Three. I usually feel at very low risk for developing serious illness. I usually feel fairly low risk of developing a serious illness. I usually feel at moderate risk of developing a serious illness. I usually feel at high risk of developing a serious illness. Oh, that's interesting. Developing a serious illness... Huh, I guess I might go three. 
Or 2.53. I never think I have serious illness. I sometimes think I have a serious illness. I often think I have a serious illness. I usually think I am actually seriously ill. Two. If I notice an unexplained bodily sensation, I don't find it difficult to think about other things. If I notice an unexplained bodily sensation, I sometimes find it difficult to think about other things. I often find it difficult to think about other things. I always find it difficult to think about other things. Oh, um... If you have an unexplained yeah, bottle... if I have an unexplained... Um, might go three. My friends and family would say, I do not worry enough about my health. They say, I have a normal attitude. They say, I worry too much. They would say, I'm a hypochondriac. Four. <laughs> if I had a serious illness, I would still be able to enjoy things in my life quite a lot. So this is kind of a different set of questions. Okay. If I had a serious illness, I would still be able to enjoy my life quite a bit. Uh, I would still be able to enjoy uh, in my life a little. I would be almost completely unable to enjoy things in my life. I would be completely unable to enjoy things in my life if I had a serious illness. Two. If I developed a serious illness, there's a good chance that modern medicine would be able to cure me. There's a moderate chance. There's a small, very small chance. And there's, there's no chance that modern medicine would be able to cure me. One. A serious illness would ruin some aspects of my life, would ruin many aspects of my life, would ruin almost every aspect, would ruin, would ruin every aspect. Um, two? If I had a serious illness, I would not feel that I had lost my dignity. I would feel I lost a little bit of my dignity. I would feel like I lost quite a lot of my dignity. I would feel that I had totally lost my dignity. One. Okay. So let's score your answers. Okay. So I'm going to copy and paste this into my little doc so I can. What the hell get is this dignity in the first place? <laughs> but for some people, that's that's it's you know that's how it manifests. Okay. So your total score out of 54 was what do you think? 54 is if you had had fours for everything. Yeah. Uh, okay. Well, I probably got 40. 40. You 40. Got, you got 28. Oh. Okay. And where do you think I got on everything I got? 25. 21. Okay. Uh, primary score, which is the anxiety score, essentially, mm -hmm. you got a 26 out of a possible 42. Okay. Again, this isn't normed, sure. but I'm very much guessing it's above average. Yeah. And I got an 18. Okay. So... You're higher on the score scale with, of me, and I would say that's that's consistent. Your negative consequences, though, was a two out of a possible twelve. That's good. And I got a three. Oh. So she's a little more pessimistic than I am. <laughs> well, well, I'm trying to remember how I answered it, but you know, essentially, I think it was I was worrying about enjoying my life. Uh, and I was also I also don't trust medicine would be able to cure me. That's probably uh, the big biggest difference because as a person with a, do a high degree, sure. I know that uh, you know we don't know as much as people think we know. Absolutely, I think there's two paths to this one, and I think the reason I answered is because on the one hand, I was pretty disappointed three years ago when I when I learned that I might have low thyroid levels. Because when I did all the research into it, I'm like, wait, so the only option is literally feeding me a synthetic hormone for the rest of my life? What? 
and it has all these negative comments? What? Okay. But on the other hand, I have a relative who had so many health issues and so many problems, so many things that you would just like, that person should have died many times over. And medicine just has kept them going. Yeah. And so I'm like, I don't know. (laughs) Okay. So the theory as to why this develops, let's dip into this a little bit. There are two models of understanding the disorder and treatment. Number one is the cognitive behavioral model. And number two is the interpersonal model. Number one, the cognitive behavioral model of health anxiety is the idea that uh, they hold that some people have a tendency to catastrophically misinterpret and ruminate on bodily sensations like palpitations, headache, and other health information like they read on the internet that the risk of cancer is high for people who had a lot of sun exposure. Mm-hmm. Like, actually, one of the things that I've been uh, focusing, my health anxiety is locking onto a little bit, is CTE, is chronic, you know, uh, what is it, traumatic encephalopathy. Oh, okay. From playing football. Oh, okay. And you hear about these cases like Junior Seau, which is one of my idols growing up. He was a linebacker like I was, hard hitter like I was. And he killed himself. Yeah. And... A lot of people wonder, there's, you know, the evidence is actually pretty scant that his repetitive head blows led to him having not suicide, but suffering a lot. You know, you you start to lose your memory. You start to have mood swings. You start to lose. It's it's like dementia, essentially. Um, And so uh, anyway, so the cognitive behavior model is like, the way that your brain works is that you and I have a tendency to catastrophically misinterpret and focus on and think a lot about mm-hmm. a particular set of things that causes us to have anxiety. That's the sure. reason why. Um, and it's based on underlying negative illness beliefs. So we, we do this catastrophic misinterpretation because... We have underlying belief systems that kind of that kind of feed it. Yeah. Often based on childhood experience and more on that later. And this results in maladaptive maladaptive coping behaviors that actually don't help, like body checking, frequent visits to the physician, internet searches. Uh, particularly body checking and internet searches can often just trigger it more. Because yeah. imagine like you uh, without any treatment and didn't know about health anxiety, you just as a matter of course, frequently checked all these different ways that you could check your body, like your pulse and, <laughs> yeah, yeah. you know, and you also kind of just did it internally. Like, yeah. do I have a, do I have any kind of, any of the hundred symptoms of a heart attack right now? Yeah. That would increase your anxiety because sure. you're focusing on uh, a lot of possibilities that will, that you'll misinterpret as definitely a sign of a heart attack. So that's the cognitive behavioral, pretty, you know, down to earth. The second model is the interpersonal model of health anxiety. And this is my explanation of it. It's not their words. Um, So it's just the way I would describe it. It's a little bit more complicated than than the CBT model. Basically, due to a lack of attunement in childhood, some people develop insecure attachment. We've talked about that before. Which results in them having persistent feelings of insecurity, loneliness, anxiety, desperation for love and attention that's retained from childhood. And it might result in them uh, distrusting other people 
because it's like, well, my working model of others was harmed because of the way I was treated. And so I don't really trust other people that much as much as I would have if I was treated well growing up. And this results in many different personality types and mental conditions, borderline, narcissism, depression, eating disorders, and health anxiety. Hmm. For avoidant people, uh, like you and me, (laughs) um, because, right, we were like, yeah, you and I are both avoidant. If we have a tendency on the attachment, have we talked about this? Yes. Yeah. We did attachment, but I'm trying to remember. Yeah. What are the two? Uh, Preoccupied and avoidant. No, I was a little more preoccupied, right? Oh, were you? Yeah. Okay. Preoccupied. Wait, 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 wait. Preoccupied chases people and chases avoided people, people runs away. Oh, yeah, yeah. No, no, you're right. I'm a little more on the avoidance side. Yeah. I was thinking of preoccupied as in like worried. Right. But avoidant is a worry too. And sometimes yeah. people will mistake that. Yeah. But anyway. So Definitely for, on the avoidant. So for avoidant people, it's hard for them. Now, you know, I've put myself like on the narcissistic scale, you know, at like the 5, 10% range, you're like at the 15, 20% range or something. On the avoidance scale, I would say similar kind of rates. Yeah. Um, so it's not like, uh, like whenever I take the tests, I'm actually like mostly secure with a little bit of avoidant and even less of preoccupied. But anyway, and I think you're not that far off from me because, you know, yeah. you, you manage relationships pretty well. And so, but... If when we regress, when we're stressed, when we have problems, it's hard for us to trust other people to help us. That's right. We also feel alone. Yep. We might be very anxious (laughs) in general. Sounds familiar. (laughs) Um, Anxiety will find something to latch on to, health anxiety being one of them. Narcissism will work its way in there as well, meaning that we're a little impervious to outside influence. Mm. You know, for dependent people, it's it's easy for them to absorb other people's influence. Right. You know, they'll go to, like, I'm kind of freaking out. I'm having a heart attack. And someone's like, I don't think you're don't having a heart attack. Don't worry about it. Come down. <laughs> yeah. And then the person's like, oh, okay, I won't. Yeah. Because I really trust other people. Um, <laughs> and I don't trust my own kind of evaluation. But for avoidant narcissistic people, they tend to close themselves off in their own bubble sure. anyway. And they're like, well, what the fuck do you know? Sure. Like, you've never, you've let me down in all sorts of ways <laughs> throughout my life. I've learned, like, I need to rely on me. And me is telling me I'm dying. Yeah. And uh, you're, you you know, you don't know me. Like, you don't know me? You're stupid. You know, <laughs> you know, that, that kind of, when you're regressing. You, know? you don't so, know me? So for the avoidant person, narcissistic person, that narcissism makes it harder for healthy outside influence to help. Mm. Um, Also, avoiding people won't seek help when they're suffering early in the process. Mm. So for your cycle, you know, the story you told, when you had those stomach issues, uh, maybe if you were less triggered or let's say Tuesday Tuesday night, if you had been like, um, I'm I'm calling everyone I know yeah. and telling them all what's happening with me. Yeah. And I don't care if I'm a burden. Yeah. Because that's, you know, because I'm secure and that's yeah. what I do. Um, you know, I just wonder if that would have helped. Yeah. Like, just to put it in, uh, you know, sort of, you know, fine, a fine point on it. Um, I could have come over to your house and gave you two Xanax. Now that would be illegal. So this is just hypothetical. Um, or I could have taken you to the ER, got you some Xanax. Sure. 
you kind of popped those two and eliminated the whole fucking thing. <laughs> like, uh, when you're having a panic, one of the best things you could ever do is take a benzo. Because if you're if if outside influence isn't helping, if your right. self talk isn't helping, eliminating the you know recursive brain cycle in your in your brain will work, and and benzos do that anyway. Sure. Um, we often try to rely on ourselves. We can be triggered by loneliness feelings or um, ultimate loneliness of death can actually trigger us as well. And uh, yeah, so for preoccupied people, the people kind of chase others, it's hard for them to trust other, uh, others um, to help them because of their, their traumas. They also can be quite anxious. They also might have learned that, and maybe we'll get into this with you in a little bit, that by exaggerating one's illness, you might actually get some of the attunement that you wanted and crave. Mm. Also, for some of these preoccupied people, they may have learned that the self is bad and only other people can save them. And so that can create anxieties. Like for me, I feel like it's it's sort of the opposite where I I dread the idea of being a burden. Yeah. And so I'm like, no, please, I don't... Cause like, because then you'll be really rejected. Yeah. Or you'll find out that people don't really care. Right. And because I saw my my grandpa become a burden, you know? Mm. And well, you saw the way that they reacted to him? It's just the reality of the situation is when someone can't walk by themselves and they start being not able to talk and communicate very well. And, and then I saw my, my grandma and my dad, you know, having to take constant care of him and so like that left an impression in my head of like oh man that's so that's so hard and then my grandma had alzheimer's and my dad for four and five years was basically just full-time caregiver to her so i'm you know speculating that i might have some models in my head where oh i don't want to become a burden right and so like and so the idea is sort of the opposite of like no, no, I don't want someone to care for me. I don't want to be sick because if I'm sick, no one will care for me. <laughs> and, right. And to uh, talk about the underlying uh, problem is that it's not that some of us worry about being a burden. It's that we worry we're going to be burdensome. And then be rejected. And then be rejected. Yeah. yeah. Um, because we're already not quite sure if people really care. Right, 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 right. Um, so for the preoccupied person, they will engage in a lot of attachment behaviors, and sometimes this can manifest as trying to elicit, you know, elicit care and sympathy from others, mm-hmm. which can subconsciously create reinforcement for health anxiety. You know, it's like, I feel alone, I'm desperate, I need, I need care. And if you were rewarded for amping up your health concerns, right. that can kind of produce a pattern, unconscious pattern of like, manifesting as somatic symptoms that gets you attention that you're really I need. do know at least two people in my social circle uh not close social circle that are like that yeah interesting and that even at least I've seen post on Facebook with some regularity hmm. things that are very much like a what is me I need attention right yeah about S- health things you know interesting yeah. So I use both theories. I use the cognitive behavior model, and I just use the interpersonal model, which can be phrased as the attachment model. 
Uh, okay, so I want to talk about another Facebook person here before we get to the risk factors. Alexis, good old Alexis, wrote in and said, definitely yes to the health anxiety. Uh, she wrote on Facebook, yeah. posted this publicly. It comes and goes in waves, but I can go from zero to convincing myself I'm dying in a span of minutes. I've been genuinely convinced. Do you remember Alexis from the live yeah. show? This I've been genuinely convinced I've had ALS, leukemia, Oh, multiple, wow. multiple kinds of cancers, etc. Severe. Wow. It felt so real. I was almost 100% sure it was true. It consisted of going to the doctors when it probably wasn't necessary, asking for tests that weren't necessary, Googling a lot, and then paradoxically avoiding checking my phone because I didn't want to receive a call oh. that meant bad news. Right. Okay, so risk factors. So these are my categories based on the research, the literature, and my own experience. So risk factors are uh, the following. There's a lot of them. One of them are just anxiety disorders in general. So if you have generalized anxiety, social anxiety, OCD, then that is a risk factor for developing health anxiety. Uh, The way I would phrase that is that you're generally anxious, and it will manifest in any number of labels we have in the DSM. That's certainly the way it is for me. Because at certain times in my life, you could uh, diagnose me with generalized anxiety. In fact, <laughs> I, um, for whatever reason, you know, you'll get uh, notifications that your doctor has filled out a note on you or something, and um, I never read them because I just, I just figure I know what's in there. Mm-hmm. But uh, a couple months ago, I actually just read the note and I saw my diagnoses, yeah. and. Right there, it's, you know, in black and white, I've been diagnosed with generalized anxiety. And I don't think that my doctor did enough uh, assessment to really warrant a confident diagnosis of generalized anxiety. But it's accurate, probably on, you know, I, I definitely could, if I, if I assessed myself, that wouldn't be unjustified. And the reason why it's there is in order to give me Xanax, you know, for my, you know, two pills every six months situation, they need a diagnosis. They need a medical reason to provide the, the Xanax, which is generalized anxiety is one of them. Um, but anyway, so so any number of anxiety disorders can be a risk factor. There also appears to be a genetic vulnerability towards developing health anxiety and anxiety in general. Oh, interesting. Twin studies have estimated heritability to be around 37%, which is pretty high. Yeah. Also, another risk factor, and here's when we get into some of the stuff you're talking about before, sick role behavior in parents. Mm. So this is uh, role behavior, not just being sick. It's like the exhibition of uh, the person is taking on a role of I'm the sick one Mm. or I'm frequently sick. You know, there's maybe an exaggeration of their, you know, uh, communication of their symptoms, this Mm -hmm. kind of thing. And so through modeling to children and also, you know, to see that person being reinforced with attunement and love, you know, sort of learning by example and by imitation, you can grow up to also develop health anxiety as a result of that. I see. Now, again, I don't want to minimize people's health anxiety. I don't want to say, oh, you're just acting. It's just in your head. Yeah. It's still real. Like, yeah. Berto, you described a situation in which there was no way out of that situation, but that can be caused by learning that 
one gets rewarded for you know sick role behavior. And look, like take the uh, the tapeworm example. For those that don't know the the story, the brief summary is: I was on a business trip, and I woke up in the morning. I went and used the bathroom. Sorry for the TMI. And afterwards, when I was about to flush, and it was number two, when I was about to flush. I saw this long white thing, and I was like, uh, what the fudge is this? And then, of course, I was like, is that a tapeworm? And then, like, I googled pictures of tapeworm. Okay, so I was like, I spent the day, you know, freaking out, right? The next morning, it happens again. There's another one. And I'm like, I've got tapeworms, multiple tapeworms. Now, what was it? I was flossing my teeth at night, and I had this um, kind of thicker, stringier floss, and I would throw it in the toilet bowl at night, and it would soak overnight and get kind of like a little spongier and bigger. And in the morning, before I had flushed, I went to use the bathroom, and then right before I flushed, there's the thing floating on top. There was a logical explanation. But until there was that logical explanation... The feeling was real that my stomach was infested with something, and it did not feel good. Right. So for someone who wasn't prone to health anxiety, they, one, might go, well, it can't be tapeworms. That's silly. Like, there's got to be another explanation. Maybe it's just, like, something that fell in there. Like, I'm not saying yeah. there's something wrong with you. I'm saying no, no, it's just for most people yeah. who don't have this very grooved neuronal pathway sure. um, they'll one go like well I can't explain what that is but uh, it might not even occur to them well that, in case there. in point when I showed the picture to a friend and my doctor they both had the same reaction what that's not a tapeworm yeah <laughs> and even though I'm like well it looks like it's like but look it doesn't matter I don't know what it is it could be any number of things it's not a tapeworm yeah um, and they were right, but in my head... So, right. So, another person with without right. anxiety, they'd be like, well, I don't know what that is, but it's not a tapeworm. Either I ate something very strange yeah. and, and I passed it, yeah. um, or, or, you know, there's got, you know, what are the other angles here? Well, maybe someone put something in there before I sat down and I didn't notice it. And even a moderate response might be like, oh, that's weird. I'll remember to ask my doctor about it the next time. Yeah. Like, fine, yeah. out of mind. Next time you're at the doctor, you might be like, you know, I had the weirdest thing the other day. And then the doctor might say like, oh, yeah, we sometimes pass all sorts of weird things. Yeah. Okay. Right. Exactly. And countless other people are having experiences like that. Yeah. And they don't stand up and yeah. say, by the way, I saw this weird thing in the toilet the other day. It turned out not to be a tapeworm. <laughs> they just don't mention it. And so we're sitting there looking in the toilet bowl going like, Oh my God! You know, and and just the, the second one was where yeah. I was really freaked out because I'm like, but, I'm infested but, with these. Things. So then there's this other level of well, so what? Yeah, plenty of people on the have planet tapeworms. have tapeworms. Right, there's treatment. Right, you know, it. The off chance you did have a tapeworm, <laughs> you know, I bought a bag of because I read that if you ate. Um, coconut and what was the other thing it was like pumpkin seeds or something i bought like bags of it and i just started eating all day long yeah. which could have caused the word another 
problem for some reason. You know? Yeah. Uh, and as I said uh, last time, people, <laughs> including Birdo, do not flush your floss. It'll get yeah. stuck in the sewage system and everything will get, um, including just right under your own house. Yeah. And you will have problems. Uh, it, it's not biodegradable. You're essentially sending, you know, fishnet material down your uh, toilet system, and it doesn't just disappear. It, it's not. It's 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 not the great abyss. There's a <laughs> there's a place where that goes, and floss is is very good at kind of getting wrapped around something in the system, and then stuff builds up anyway. And imagine being a public worker trying to clean all that shit out, which someone eventually has to do. Someone's <laughs> got to get down there with a rake and, like, you know, uh, rake all that shit out. So you're a ha- houseopondriac? Yeah. <laughs> I'm just saying I, I've seen YouTube videos of, like, you know, workers trying to yeah. – I won't even go into detail. And I've also – uh, Why are you cleaned out my videos? own. Well there, well, there was this news story about how people were flushing their wet wipes. Oh. And those aren't, a lot of them aren't biodegradable. Right. And even if they are quote unquote biodegradable, they, they don't biodegrade in the span sure. of time they need to. Sure. Because uh, they're basically like filters, these wet wipes, right. that um, as fats come down you know, the system, it builds up on on the filter oh, boy. and then you have these gloopy nets Ugh. of fat that build up in the sewage system someone's got to clean that out <laughs> when you should be throwing it away in in the in the garbage which which is disgusting so should you dump statins into your <laughs> yeah um so you know there's more humane ways like yeah. To wipe your ass, namely a bidet, and then you, I have a bidet. Yeah, a, a recent article came out that bidets are probably better for your um, rectal health. Uh-huh. They found, which t- makes total sense. It to t- me. makes total sense. Yeah. Anyway. Now, by the way, what if you just didn't wipe? <laughs> well, like a lot of animals don't wipe. I know. How does that work? It just crusts up and ah. you know dries out. Ah. Well, if you're eating right, you actually don't need to wipe right, that much. You got enough fiber. We just don't have enough. Yeah. Um, or if you're eating right for your, because like tigers don't eat that much fiber. But yeah, and and other animals will lick their own asses to clean it. Yeah, and their asses are kind of like out there, and then like they're always rubbing on the ground and stuff. <laughs> Okay, so there's a long list of know, got risk this. factors here. Other is, so sick role uh, behavior in parents, but also sick behavior in children that's being rewarded, which is along those lines. Um, tendency towards catastrophic automatic thoughts. So you could have catastrophic right. automatic thoughts in general. Say, like, I just felt something in the ground. Is that an earthquake? Um, if you have a general tendency, you're going to... Which gonna, I, I do have that general tendency. Okay. Above average awareness of bodily sensation. Right. So just like you're just more aware. Tendency to monitor bodily changes. Illness trauma. So you've had that. I've had that. Prone to obsession. Prone to rumination. Both you and I are in that category. Prone to body dysmorphia. Um, Right. So how does it apply here? Well, it's just associated. So it's not a cause maybe, but... It's associated, which kind of is interesting, but kind of makes sense. So we tend to think of body dysmorphia as, as an anorexic problem, sure. but it's but it really can we can describe it in a lot of different ways. Okay. Essentially, like you really f- focus on your body a lot. Okay. 
and you have a distorted narrative of your body. Like my arm looks weird. Yeah. Like there's something wrong with my arm. It or my weird. hair is dumb or my yeah. nose is funny or, you know, it, it, there's a, I see. It's a dysmorphia in that you you're just you have a distorted idea of mm. your body that other people would be like, yeah, yeah. no, that's not true. Prone to intrusive thoughts, I certainly suffer from that. What? Like like um, you're in the train of thought and something comes in, like yeah, okay. Well, intrusive thoughts are unwanted thoughts that mm, yes. okay. I'm like, why am I thinking about that right now? Sure. Um, a greater desire for certain certainty regarding the nature of symptoms. So, so yeah. some people really want to know what is that. Yep. Where other people are like, I don't give a fuck. What you know? misinformation about health. Mm. So, the more misinformation you have about health, the greater likelihood you'll have health anxiety. Yeah. Neuroticism, which is just a term for being um, depressed and or anxious. Underlying dysfunctional beliefs about illness or health. Lack of coping skills, alexithymia, which is deficits in the recognition of your emotions. Um, I think uh, you and I both actually have that yeah. on some level. Being a male kind of lends itself in that direction. Emotional regulation deficits, bad experiences with medical care. That's certainly me. Um, I've had some traumatic experiences at no fault to the medical people, but mm. because of my anxiety... And because I wasn't taking any benzos at the time yeah. of the medical procedure 20 years ago or something, um, I fainted and because of how uh, oh, wow. how scared my body was. Yeah. My conscious mind was like, I'm fine. You know, it's sort of like you give a blood draw and you're like, I know this is fine. But then you pass out. Yeah. It, you know, it's, it's, because, it's, like that. it's like your body just doesn't like it. Weird. And so if you have bad experiences with medical care, you're more likely to have health anxiety, and that's certainly me. Um, lack of trust and authority mm. is associated. Uh, speculation, because that leads to not really trusting physicians. Mm. Sure. You're sort of on your own. Uh, resistance to medical reassurance. Uh, so all these are studied associations with health anxiety. And then there's some some bigger ones that I want to get into here. Uh one of them is called anxiety sensitivity. So basically, this is the tendency to misinterpret sensations that accompany anxiety as indications of imminent danger. Okay. So for some people, they'll get a little anxious, and their heart will start to pound a little bit. They'll get sweaty palms, yeah. maybe a little confused. You know, they're nervous about something. And they don't even really notice it, or they don't really care. They're like, oh, I'm getting a little nervous. Yeah. For you and me and other people who suffer from panic, this really triggers some kind right. of deep trauma in us. Yeah. And this is what we call anxiety sensitivity. So mm, at the slightest hint of anxiety, you and I will notice it very quickly and it will, will over-exaggerate the dangerousness of that. Huh. Um, so people, this is panic disorder, essentially yeah. people will say that, you know, they're worried they're going to have a serious illness, like heart attack or going crazy or just the loss of control. Yeah. Like people worry about fainting or humiliating social rejection. Like, uh, people will sometimes with panic disorder will worry about vomiting and then everyone seeing them vomit or a and, bucket of blood getting dropped on you at the prom or something. Right. 
Um, so, yeah, let's see. Uh, I won't go into the details on that. Um, also, in addition to anxiety sensitivity being very much associated as the basis for a lot of people with health anxiety, another risk factor is intolerance of uncertainty. And you actually kind of talked yeah. about this a little bit. I don't like uncertainty in that yeah. sense. The inability to withstand negative reactions triggered by perceived uncertainty in general. So do you have that general personality trait? Like if you were to, um, if someone was uh, trying to think of another situation that would trigger someone with this sensitivity, it'd be like, um, you know, we don't know, you know, <coughs> global warming. We don't know if it's going to get worse or better. Or I don't know. Yeah, no, there's a lot of uh, social political things that when they're uncertain, definitely trigger me. Okay. They're, what I'd say is, on the other hand, like the flip side of it is, on a more mundane level, I'm really comfortable with ambiguity and with uncertain casual situations. Like, uh, where, what are we doing tonight? Yeah. I don't know. We'll just play by ear. Okay, cool. Or okay. like, we're downtown somewhere and we don't really know where we're at, where we're going. That's okay. So I'm not like that. <laughs> I, I'm, I'm, if I'm not sensitive to the global warming right. uncertainty, but I am sensitive to, as, <laughs> as I'm sure you and I have clashed. Yes. Uh, like, for example, uh, for your birthday <laughs> celebration, mm -hmm. you were like, um, let's hang out. Uh, I think original. Well, there were three different days we were going to hang out. Uh -huh. um, I think we were going to hang out before. Yeah. So originally, so, it was like the Friday before my birthday. Right. So right. you had said, um, "Yeah, birthday. We're hanging out. Right. Uh, Friday before my birthday." Um, and then I was like, "Okay." I put it on my schedule. Right. And I'm like, um, "Okay." So I blocked that off Friday night, and then you texted us Friday afternoon and said, "Can't make it." Yeah, I'm trying to remember what that what that one was. That was the that wouldn't have been sick yet. I don't think. No, it wasn't. I was feeling great. Yeah, um, but something maybe happened. work or something. I'm not sure. Okay. Uh, uh, so so that happened, and then and then two and then you're like, well, let's do it on my actual birthday on Tuesday. And I was like, well, I work pretty late. And you're like, it's fine. We'll hang out late. And I was like, well. And the other the other people were like, well, I can't hang out till 930. And you're like, yeah, that's fine. We'll hang out at 10 or something. And I'm like, okay. And, and oh, I, yeah, yeah, yeah. So it was like, I, that's right. I said, hey, I can hang out on my birthday. And, and you're like, well, I work. And I'm like, that's cool. We can do it later. Yeah. yeah. And um, I've learned to tolerate your style. <laughs> You'll just be like, well, we'll just play it by ear. You know right. what I mean? I, I, what are we going to do? Well, I don't know. We'll just do something. Something will be done. To me, I will plan, like, even for my own birthday, three months in advance. <laughs> I'll know exactly what right. I'm going to do when, you know, blah, blah, blah. Because I don't, I just don't like that it uncertainty. Gives you like, anxiety not to do it that way. Well, you know, anxiety is one way to put it. Another is just like, I'm just not comfortable with it. So, like, um, like, uh, Stacy and I will say, oh, let's go on a trip to Europe or let's, you know, let's do this trip. You know, right. like, we're actually going to New York City um, in, a, in a few months. And, um, she has a spa in Manhattan. And so, uh, I just, since I married her, we both own a spa right. <laughs> in Manhattan and uh, we're part owners. She's part owner. And uh, so 
there's a reason to go out there for right. some reason. And we're like, oh, well, you know, I'll tag along and we'll make it a trip. And we knew about this months ago. Yeah. And, and, I've, and I, every few weeks I'll be like, we haven't bought our plane tickets yet. Yeah. I don't know exactly the dates yet. And once I kind of get, even if it, I, even if it's two years in advance, yeah. I just like to get that on the books. Right. And then it's like, okay, you know, I can relax and I can start to plan my life around that. Even though, practically speaking, I could probably buy the plane tickets the week before sure. and be fine. But, but I don't like that. Right. And so I think that also is a basis for a personality trait <laughs> uh -huh. that makes one susceptible to health anxiety. Yeah, yeah. Because health is uncertain. Yeah. There's so many things. Like, I have a tickle. Right. What does that mean? I don't know. No one can really even tell me what that <laughs> right, is. Right, right, right. Another factor is cognitive fusion. So this is the tendency to fuse two different ideas okay. in ways that don't make any sense. Like, palpitations means I'm dying, mm. whereas other people uh, might not have that problem. For me, it, when I th read this research, I thought about uh, way back when I was probably like four years old, I'm thinking, maybe, or no, I wouldn't have been that. I would have been like seven or eight. Uh, I loved mustard. And so <laughs> I, at my, I was, we were going out the door summer and we were going to a day camp. It, it was a day uh -huh. camp that me and all my siblings would go to and, you know, you'd play tug of war and all this kind of stuff in the summer. Fun. Yeah, it was a lot of fun. And my sister asked me what I wanted for breakfast. And I said, I want a mustard sandwich. <laughs> and so she just got two pieces of like Wonder Bread. Yeah. Just slathered a, like a lot of mustard because uh -huh. it's like you got to make it worth it. And I ate that thing. And then like 15 minutes later, I'm getting this feeling, you know, in my stomach. Yeah. And then I just had explosive diarrhea. Oh. And I think it turned out that I actually just had the flu or something. Okay. But I was convinced it was, it was the sandwich. I was convinced. And, and I told myself, I'm allergic to mustard. I never ate mustard. Had you, did you used to eat mustard sandwiches before that? I must have. Okay. Yeah. Or at least, I don't know. Okay. At any rate, okay. I had that mustard sandwich. I had explosive okay. diarrhea. I was convinced it was, it the, was mustard. the mustard. Looking back. There's no fucking way it was the mustard. No, vinegar and mustard seed. <laughs> right. It, that, the, it's not going to do yeah. it. You know what I mean? Um, and it wasn't until I was like in my 20s where I, or maybe late teens, I was like, wait a You know, I, I probably caught myself saying, <laughs> no, I can't have mustard. I'm allergic to it. Yeah, yeah, It wasn't until I was an adult that I was like, wait a minute. Wait a minute. <laughs> Why? I, I'm basing that on what? You know, I, I'm basing that on that one event that yeah. happened before day camp yeah. as a kid. I don't think I'm allergic. Of course I'm not allergic to mustard. That doesn't make any... Anyway, so that fusion that... So, you know, palpitations, I'm dying. Yeah. Uh, stomach gurgling, I'm dying. Or, you know, with... Because uh, you had a lot of connections being made. You had right. thyroid. Yeah. You know, heart. Uh, you know, pulse. Yeah. Uh, rumblings. Like, you had fused a lot of things into one. Yeah. Whereas some people, they don't have that tendency. Now, one could say there's pros and cons. I would think, I'm not quite sure, but when I'm talking on the podcast, you and me, we both have to fuse a lot of things together. We have to make, Absolutely. We have to make connections. Look, we, one, of the, one of the things that, I am, that makes me good at my job and that I, makes me creative and stuff is that I, I make connections constantly in my head. Right. 
So that same superpower, unfortunately, is my kryptonite. <laughs> right. You know, and to, I don't know, if, I don't know research on this, but let's say your brain just doesn't work very fast. Yeah. Not, not as fast as our brain works. Yeah. Maybe we don't have time to make the connections, <laughs> you know, like our, our, the, how fast our brain works actually works against us. In some sure. Another factor here is childhood experiences with illness or death. Yeah. So there you go. <laughs> patients with health anxiety recalled significantly higher rates of the following events. So they just ask them, you know, did this happen to you? How yeah. much? Higher rates of receiving more attention in childhood due to a health problem. Yes. Ex- experiencing a family member complaining about their health. Yes. Parents who are inappropriately concerned about their health. Uh, my dad being obsessed over the medical cleanliness of things. And, and I remember my dad taking my grandparents' blood pressure and because he was the doctor in the house. So there's always medical jargon and medical talk. And, and there was real illness coupled with that. And Right. High, people <laughs> with health anxiety report higher rates of these things and also negative illness beliefs in parents, mm-hmm. which you're reporting. Yeah. The rest of them we actually have stats on. Uh, like, sorry, f- like, for example, I remember... Distinctly, my dad was always so frustrated with my grandma because it was like, oh my God, they, they left that milk sitting out. Oh, did they just, did they, they didn't cook those eggs enough. Or like, I can't believe they touched that and they didn't they t- touch this. Wow. You know, it was a lot of that. Wow, you're and, just like your dad in that way. Well, and he would always tell me like, and, I, and he was always approaching it from like, well, I'm a doctor. Like, I know about bacteria. Yeah. Um. Because it's interesting because I grew up in a household that was, you know, my my ancestors are all farmers. I always kind of have to remember that. Like, yeah. my all my great-grandparents were essentially farmers, if not, like, you know, similar lifestyle where yeah. cleanliness wasn't possible. You know, there's just yeah. dirt and shit and pig. <laughs> you know, I my Japanese uh, ancestors, you know, great-grandparents in central Washington – had pigs. Yeah. There's actually this really funny story because my great-grandfather, uh, Zentaro Honda, is, is was a very short, slight man. Like, he yeah. probably weighed 105 pounds or something. Oh, my God. That is very small. And, uh, and co- comedically, his wife, who's also Japanese, was probably twice his size. Oh, my like God. She, she was probably the same height, but she was very stout anyway. Yeah. But there's this very funny story that everyone talks about how uh, they were trying to wrangle the pigs, and one of the pigs went running at uh, my great grandfather uh-huh. and went through his legs. But because my gra- my great grandfather was so short, it it lifted him off the ground. Oh my gosh! And carried him like a horse. Oh my gosh! But he was but he was backwards. Backwards. <laughs> so this. This rampaging pig is <laughs> is running through the pen oh my while gosh. my great grandfather is riding this backwards pig, and like everyone in the family was laughing. That's hilarious. Anyway, uh, why was I talking about that? Uh, farm, the right? Lack so, of- so uh, the way I grew up with my parents, there was probably too little paid attention to sure. uh, that sort of thing. Plus. I lived in the country where dirt and, <laughs> you know, and dog poop and, yeah. and even horse poop was just kind of like a it's regular part of life. Yeah. And you just kind of got a sense like it was inside the house. It was outside yeah. the house. 
Whereas you grew up in the city, where and your dad was, you know, very clean, cleanliness oriented. He was, yeah. Well, because as opposed to you've seen, like uh, my grandma Liti's place. Now, the place itself is fine, but uh, very different kitchen practices. She leaves meat sitting out. She like my dad would have been constantly horrified there. And uh, someone's pointed out to me how, like, it's ironic because me, when I'm at my grandma's, I don't care. I don't even notice it. I don't even notice You're it. You're acclimated to it because you grew up with it. And it, it's one of these, like, or you just trust I never her. got sick there. Right. But it's pretty funny because anywhere else, I'd be freaking the F yeah. out. It's funny because Stacy's probably average in this way. You know, maybe she's in between you and me. But because uh, I'll, eat, I'll eat things past our expiration date. Yeah. Um, you know, like if I, she, she, you know, she'll be like, oh, we left that hot dog out a little bit too long. You got to put it back in the fridge. And I'm always like, ah, who cares? Anyway. Yeah. <laughs> um, so I have other health anxiety in other ways, yeah. but for whatever reason, that doesn't trigger me. Because I think of my childhood, it, it just right. really acclimated me to just this, this sort of messiness of life. And I always kind of think also like, well, if I get a little bacteria, it'll b- boost my immune system. Right. <laughs> anyway. Um <laughs> uh, so patients with high health anxiety recalled higher significant rates of being sick a lot of it as a children. So the normal rate yeah. when they ask people without health anxiety, 8% will say, I was sick a lot as a child. Yeah. What do you think those with health anxiety, what percentage report, I was sick a lot as a child? 50%. Close, 33. Yeah. Missing school for health-related reasons, the normal rate is, what do you think? Missing school, 5%. 17%? 17%. You know, yeah. it's normal to oh, be Oh, yeah, yeah, sick. that's true. Yeah. What's the rate for health anxiety people? 40%. 53%. So that's interesting. So right away, we're looking at like, yeah. you know, three to four times, about three times the rate. People with health anxiety going like, yeah, I was sick a lot as a child. Yeah, I miss school a lot for health Yeah, re- I was sick a lot as a child. I miss school a lot. Now, it was when I was younger. I don't remember it as much when I was like in junior high. Certainly not in high school, but when I was a kid, yeah, yeah. Now, chicken or the egg, right? Was did were you health anxious back then as well, and thus blah blah blah, or or was the trauma or the experience or the reinforcement the development chronic uh, coughs, actual problems, fevers, and things? And uh, I don't know if it's because I live with three older people and they all smoked, or I have no idea. But what I do know is. I wasn't anxious. I was never worried of health when I was a kid, but I was sick a lot. So ironically, your dad smoked, even yes. though he was terrified. Yes. <laughs> so the, the the thing that's, you know, yes. deteriorating. Higher rates of um, serious injuries in self. So 10% is normal, 28% for people with health anxiety. So that would be like, you know, your car accident. Yeah. Experience of a close friend being seriously ill. Twenty percent is is the normal rate. Forty two percent for those with health anxiety. Hmm, I didn't have that. Experiences of extreme illness or injury to significant others. Although, sorry, I do remember in uh, fourth grade, this little kid in our class one day left and never came back, and we found out that he had leukemia. Hmm. And I remember this. To so this that day. so that could you know could have affected fifth grade. Higher so. rates of serious illness affecting close family members. And yes. uh, that's actually a big one. So that's normal. 5% of people will say, yeah, you know, my f- close family, you know, my dad had a serious injury, yeah. serious, serious illness. 
32% of those people yeah. with health. So if you, so to me, it's hard to know causality, correlation, self-report, but it seems likely that when we are exposed as children to serious illness, that predisposes us to develop health anxiety later in life. That makes sense. And one of the things I was thinking about the other day is um, maybe in the old days it was more common, but it's not as common, I think, nowadays in the modern world for the children to live in the same household as the grandparents, especially not in the U.S., Mm. whereas I did. And so when you live in the same household as the aging grandparents, you're going to see more health stuff. Right. It's just inevitable. Yeah. Let alone if they have a chronic illness, which they did. Yeah. If you live with your parents and then sometimes you visit the grandparents, you'll see it, but not all the time. Right. The last two are of risk factors are traumatic childhood experiences. So patients with health anxiety recalled significant higher rates of the following. Physical violence in the family. What do you think the normal percentage is? Um, physical violence in the family, geez, 5%. Yeah, 7% of people will say, yeah, physical violence in my family. 32% for people with health anxiety. Wow. Uh, So a pretty high rate, pretty big big difference. Being victims of violence, also much higher rate for people with health anxiety. Sexual abuse, 7% for non-health anxiety people, 29% for people... With health anxiety, so you've been you've experienced right. sexual abuse. So essentially, like trauma, the way that I conceptualize this is, as we're traumatized, it uh, activates our anxiety system, yeah, which and our ideas of unsafety, which makes us more susceptible to any variety of anxiety. I could see that, and like in my case, I don't know if this is true in general, but in my case, there was such a uh, there was an amount of physical confusion. Like, what is this? Like, you know, the act I'm being asked to perform, what I am seeing, I'm, I'm not even sure what I'm seeing. Like, and it's all body related. Right. So like, there's something to that too. Like, yeah. I don't understand what's happening with the body stuff here. What, right. What's going on? Connecting. Yeah. yeah. Major parental upheaval, like divorce or abandonment, higher rates for people. And you've certainly experienced that. Right. And parental alcohol and drug problems, and you've experienced that. So these are all risk factors. The last here is attachment insecurity. Research shows that there are associations between insecure attachment styles and health anxiety, particularly preoccupied, but also avoidant. So parents more likely to have insecure attachment. Um, so not only for 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 you know if you have insecure attachment, you're more likely to develop health anxiety. But if your parents had insecure attachment styles, then the child is more likely to have health anxiety. Um, Okay, so let's get into some of the more uh, smaller things here. There's a new term in the research literature called cyberchondria. It's not a DSM Hmm. diagnosis, but, you know, it's basically the using the Internet a lot. The here's my definition based on other definitions. The long-term intensive or repetitive use of the internet to reduce health anxiety, which results in higher anxiety. <laughs> I've been victim of this. Yeah. The research shows there's a correlation between health anxiety and online health searches. So even just, you know, now obviously if you have health anxiety, you're going to do more online health searches. Yeah. Uh, but it's possible that just doing online health searches could result in health anxiety. 
Individuals with higher scores of health anxiety spent more time on the Internet in general. Uh, even if people get good info, they tended to experience higher anxiety, which is, oh, in, which is interesting. That's very interesting. Right? So that's inter- that needs to be said to people with health anxiety. If yeah. you're one of those people who suffer from health anxiety, you need to understand that there's but a risk. Even if you get the good info. Right. Which I'm guessing right. there's a lot of good info. I mean, right. if you Google you know, heart palpitations, because I have. Right. There's, there's, I never saw anything that looked suspect, you know? So even getting good information. So you need to ask yourself, is an, is a Google search going to help me ultimately with my, with my anxiety or not? Yeah. My doctor literally told me the other day, he's like, just stop Googling. Right. So (laughs) that could be part of the treatment of just like, even though it's counterintuitive in some ways, it's like, Okay, I just had a bodily sensation. Right. You know what? I'm going to wait until my doctor's appointment, or I'll make one for next week, and I'll wait. I'm not going to look on the internet, even though I want to. I'm not going to ruminate on it. I'm, I'm going to fight every urge in my body to connect, to fuse this with I'm dying or something. And I'm just going to assume that it's a normal thing that I haven't heard other people experiencing and that everything's going to be okay. Now, I always have to say... I'm not a medical physician, so yeah. if you, it's, you know, I'm not telling you people out there to ignore your body, because right. if you actually are suffering from something, you do need medical care right away. So it's nuanced. It's hard to give direct advice. Yeah. And one of the things that I realized that's really hard, because in, in some of those moments recently, I was thinking, Sh- shoot, like, I wish I, there was just a number I could call, and I could go through my whole thing, and without to me having to go somewhere, they could just give me some advice. But one of the things that gets in the way of that is liability. Because if you call, and the nurse on the phone's like, ah, oh, you know, it sounds like you're just having a panic attack. Right. And then you die from a heart attack. Right. There's the big lawsuit. Right. So you, as a patient, have to uh, do your best yeah. to try to figure that out. And and the other thing is, there's got to be a way to distinguish. Uh, for example, three years ago, when I went to the doctor and I got the blood tests that were pretty concerning because I had high cholesterol and um, uh, high triglycerides, all these things, um, I used the internet heavily to research all the ways I could improve my diet and my health. And I was very successful. I spent nine months, and nine months later, I got the new blood tests, and they were all green, right? So somehow that was like a positive version of the obsession. Right. Because things worked out for you. Yeah, I guess so. Um, The other thing is, you know, which I have a question for you about that, because I know that you're quite, uh, you know, involved, shall we say, in health knowledge and practices you know you have a lot of ideas that are you know i'm guessing sound but you think about a lot in terms of you know how what kinds of things you eat yeah it's mainly what you eat right it's it's a combination definitely a lot of it is what i eat but uh yeah but yeah finish your your thought that it has there's pros and cons to it and the pro if you actually do it right you can actually uh, correct for actual problems, which is good. Two, when you correct for the problems, you'll get good results that right. will reassure you. But I think the dark side to this is this assumption that uh, if I engage in this obsession, 
this obsessional behavior, I, one, have control over such things, which isn't really true, death in particular. Right. And two, if I don't remain constantly hypervigilant about what goes in my body, all hell is going to break loose. And like, you know, you know, I, I, I can't remember who was telling me about this. They were like, you know, sugar scrapes the insides of your veins. They said something like that to me. Like if you have granulated, you know, mm-hmm. processed sugar, it physically scrapes the inside of your, you know, Ouch. cardiovascular system. That sounds painful. Which I don't know <laughs> if that's true or not. Maybe it is, maybe it isn't. It doesn't sound quite doesn't sound right. right to me. But that kind of thinking, right? Okay, it's true. You know, you might want to cut back on the granulated sugar. It, there's not a lot of great things that come from that. There's other ways to get sweets and if that's what you're craving. But to go that far with it, you know, could, even though it's, you know, you're not going to get a lot of argument from your physician about cutting back on sugar, the sort of belief system around that can actually feed the anxiety. Do you think you suffer in that way? Well, there's there's an ironic component to this because as much as I suffer from anxiety and from health anxiety, right, there are areas, you know how you were saying how weird it was that my dad smoked, well, for someone who's health anxious, why would I, A, be, you know, staying up super late a lot and sleeping little? B, you know, going sort of on eating binges where like just drinking a ton and eating a lot and eating like crappy foods late at night too. It's like, and C, uh, driving a car. Uh, well, for example, and or sitting a lot all day long, right? Like, if I'm that health anxious, number one killer in the in the country, right, is heart disease. Like, well, wait, well, those are some... The thing is, that is, as you know, we're very complex creatures, right? So, the one area that I wasn't obsessed about was, like, these, like, more basic things. I was always like, I have a hernia. I have a, a, a freaking um, appendicitis. I, I might be having this, that, and the other thing. But the daily, just the daily choices were totally in Congress with these anxieties and have been. And I'm not saying I'm cured or something. I'm just saying. So what happened for me uh, three years ago, and it didn't stick enough, but it did stick for, for a little while, was I sort of channeled a little bit of this obsession towards, okay, what if I made healthy choices, right? Um, and so it, it is it is a tricky balance because... I wasn't um, obsessed at all about what I was eating or how I was sleeping or things like that. And then I became more aware of it, right? But it's still it's still hard to keep um, sort of to not regress into not caring, which is essentially what happened to me recently because I went back and I did the blood test and I'm like, oh, shit. I'm back to where I was because I kind of just lost. I lost track of being interested in this. Yeah. But it's a balance because, to your point, if I became obsessed, like with, like if I'm at a meal, I'm like, what is that on my plate? Is that a, you know, like if I become like that, then I, I'm sure that doesn't help me and that triggers right. Me in so the opposite right, direction. exactly. So if it, there's nothing wrong with eating right, and your doctor's going to praise you for that, and your blood results show the positive effects of that yeah. lifestyle, and to have core beliefs that are exaggerated 
it can set you up for high health anxiety or even kind of low-grade ongoing if you interpret certain foods to be like much higher in terms of the risk factor of affecting you, right? Um, and or, you know, like... If I eat that food, you know, that's going, you know, we're, we're starting to dip into the fat shaming well, it's actually, episode. And it's actually kind of like, for me, anyways, the way I've experienced it is in this angle. Oh, sure, I'm at a bar at 5 p.m. after work, knowing that I'm still going to eat dinner later. And I'm ordering two alcohol drinks and some snacks. But it's okay because there's avocado and Brussels sprouts on this snack. So it's almost like the opposite. It's like, but if you really dig deep, do you think your whole soul is on board with that? What do you mean? Like, it not there still some part of you that's like, but remember, you're you know too many calories. Well, or- my my point is that I I'm, I'm struggling with two different problems. This one is the one where I'm trying to trick myself into actually doing unhealthy things, but by using the the. But right, excuse right. But it's I'm just the, wondering if there maybe there isn't. There's a smaller part of yourself that's quite intense of just like, but you know you're fucking your body over right now. Oh yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. That's yeah. the same voice that like, but you know you shouldn't buy that jacket. Right. You know. Yeah. It, so, it, so so I guess you know for you listeners out there, you know, just think about it, it's complex because. There are thoughts going on in your head that might be medically very sound. Yeah. And there might be multiple kinds of voices in your head. Right. And we have to evaluate those as to the uh, helpfulness and what we choose to focus on. It's a big part of the cognitive model of health anxiety and the treatment of it is like, okay, what are the, like for me, I'll just say the way my, process works is I'll, the way it is now the past couple of years is either um, I feel like I have some kind of heart problem some kind of high blood pressure problem yeah. like actually I'll just talk about like my version of cyberchondria was this was I don't know like five six years ago or something I whenever I'd go to the doctor uh, they would take my blood pressure and they'd be like oh it's a little high you know, maybe you have white white coat syndrome, right? Uh-huh. They'll be like, and oh, in your records, you frequently have kind of a high yeah. blood pressure reading. And I'd always, it just would never trigger me because it just, for whatever reason, just never bothered me. And I'd, right. I'd always kind of be like, um, huh. I'd be like, oh, huh, that's interesting, whatever. Yeah. You know, just, I just thought, yeah, you know, I, it just didn't, it just would go right past me. Until one night, I don't know what was going on, you know, in terms of my stress level yeah. or something. I think, and it was late at night, and I think I was trying to fall asleep, and it just sort of, I just sort of remembered, like, huh, the last time I was at the doctor, they said I had, and and they said I frequently have that reading, <laughs> and this would be like two sure. years in between each reading kind of a thing, and looking back, it was still kind of low, it was like, yeah. you know, 135 over 90 or so, or right. 140 over 90, and yeah. although... That is, but you it's, know, it's pre, but it's not. Yeah, it's not something to freak out about, right. especially now that I've had readings much higher than that at times. But anyway, um, so uh, it suddenly just kind of gets into my head, like, well, wait, maybe I have ongoing high blood pressure. Oh no! So that <laughs> occurs to me, and then I'm like, well, 
what is blood high blood pressure? Like I just I just right. so I immediately go to my computer. Oh no! And it's, so this is late Downward at night. Spiral. You know, it's probably like one or two at night, and I and I Google it, and you know, and it describes what's happening. It's you know, you're you either have hardening arteries or you have some kind of underlying condition or whatever. Ah. And when Wait, your heart, my arteries are hardening as you speak. <laughs> when your heart's pounding really hard, it puts undue pressure on your arteries, which creates scarring or whatever. Right. And this makes your heart, your arteries even harder, which makes your blood pressure even worse. And you can have strokes and heart attacks right. and other and kidney problems and all this. And, and so you're and, reading all this. So I'm reading this, and I immediately have this vision in my uh. head. Of my of my arteries like just ripping <laughs> ripping apart, you know? <laughs> and and my brain exploding <laughs> un, under pressure, oh, no. you know. I mean, not literally, but <laughs> yeah. you know, but yeah, yeah. like, and you know, and it, it it the article talked about how you don't notice, you know. It's the, a silent killer. It's a silent killer. <laughs> like you won't feel any symptoms. I mean, way to describe it. Like it's just. <laughs> it's all you know. So and then I'm thinking. Oh my gosh. So for how many years? It's like ninjas will break into your house at night when you're not even aware of it. Yeah, yeah, and kill you, and you'll kill wake you. up, and you won't even know you've been killed. <laughs> um, and so I'm imagining. Oh, I just geez. have this vision of like for years now, I've had this silent destruction right. of, of my body. It's almost like we age. Uh, yeah. And I'm terrified now. And right. now because I'm prone to anxiety, right. that starts to spike. I, I, I'm pacing around the house. I'm like, what do I do? What do I do? Ah. I call the nurse and the nurse is like, you know, like doesn't really know what to say other right. than, you know, maybe you should go to the doctor and ask them. Yeah. Because <laughs> you're like, so in the past couple of years, I've sometimes had... Doctor visits, and in yeah. those vi visits, my blood pressure is a little high. Right, and now I read that it could be bad. Right, and you know, sure. the nurse is saying that's all true. You know, there's, true. there's nothing strange about. So, this from I go from not ever worrying about my blood pressure uh -huh. or my heart or anything yeah, yeah, yeah. to a traumatic one night experience. <sighs> where now, um, you know, fast forward over years of like. Um, Increased anxiety, increased noticing, right. increased monitoring. Uh, other nights where I'm up late at night going, like, I just had a high reading. Why is that? Yeah. Um, when I'm calm, I'm like, well, you know, according to research, a lot of people have hypertension. And I'm on a med now, a mild med that actually brings it down quite significantly. But... Uh, you know, any number of things are going to kill me, including heart attack and stroke. Right. Like, I've always known yeah. that that's one of the things that's likely to take me. Right. But it's, it's somehow different on a physical, deeper level to have, like, something to kind of focus on now that is signs of it happening. Yeah, like my leg's hurting or something. Yeah. It's like, intellectually, I know I'm going to die. And yeah. I've... I've accepted that on the level of, you know, I've talked about this before on the podcast. It's like, I'm disappointed that we all have to die. Uh, I wish right. that we didn't. It's a bummer to me that everyone I love and myself included, like, uh, I'm, I'm going to die. If there's an afterlife, then 
Um, it'll, it'll all be worth it. <laughs> uh, if there's not, then I don't know. I just kind of think of it's kind you of and a, Trump can go golfing all the time. <laughs> it's just kind of a bummer. You know what I mean? And uh, so uh, uh, so it's not that I I'm like delusional about living forever. Sure. But but there's something that makes for, for people out there who don't for people with anxiety, you know, you don't have to have me explain this, but for people who don't. The way I like to describe anxiety for people who don't have anxiety is imagine there's like a killer behind you, like John Gacy. <laughs> yeah. And he's got like a chainsaw and he or like but with a silencer, <laughs> but he's got something that's just going to really hurt. Yeah. And, you know, he's he's going to really do some horrible things to you. Right. And he's ready. He's like about to pounce. That's what anxiety feels like. Right. It's like all the time. Right. And and there's nothing you can do. Right. You can't run. You can't hide. Right. It's just the danger is just there. It's there. It's you. It's coming for you. It's inside you or whatever. The call is coming from inside the chainsaw. <laughs> yeah. And so, um, so for me, I didn't really have health anxiety until that moment. That was like a triggering traumatic moment that has mm. been well repeated. Since wow. Then. Yeah. Um, <sighs> and I feel like my path has led to this episode. I can't believe I didn't do this episode. I've been doing the podcast for almost 12 years. Yeah. Why haven't I done this before? Um, I feel like finally getting to this episode has, and I hope, <laughs> has wiped away 90% of my anxiety, similar to when I started studying panic disorder. Wow. It eliminated a lot of my... Yeah. And I hope for you, this can help you as well. I, I think and hope so. Um you know, one of the things that I was thinking about as you were telling this, and we were just talking about the food and all the things, uh, there has been a commonality to almost, if not every single panic event that I remember or anxiety event that I remember. And it's uh, heavy alcohol consumption either the day before or the day le days leading up to it. Um, I don't know if... I think there's some correlation, right? Yeah. Like, so to be specific on how that physiologically can affect someone's anxiety is one, it interferes with sleep, yeah. which raises people's anxiety. Two, it um, will, there are certain brain chemistry elements that are thrown out of whack and there are reverberations that uh -huh. have to be adjusted for over a span of days that right. can also lead to anxiety. And it can upset your stomach. And it can even lead to other little little glitches in your body and stuff. Right. So, whatever the case may be, the first panic attack was after a night of ridiculous heavy drinking mixed in with, like, you know, sexual experience that was, you know, a little conflicted and blah, blah, blah. And so, um, meaning I felt conflicted about it. And, and it happened the next day, and that was my very first panic attack when I was 30. But every time that I remember, like, a kind of one of these things, it, it was, like, either that same night or a previous night I had been drinking, including this last one. Now, again, maybe it did get triggered by some virus or something, but it happens to be that the Saturday before that Monday, I, I drank quite a bit. It wasn't, like, it wasn't, like, Vancouver, Vancouver me drinking or something, but it was, it was a lot of drink. 
anyways, the reason I brought that up is because, see, that's a case of, again, where, well, that's puzzling, right? I'm like soul health uh, uh, anxious and like, oh, but alcohol, I make this exception for alcohol. So I, that's an area of my life that I want to be a little bit more obsessive about. A little less drinking. A little less staying up all night. A little less binging in food. You know? Yeah, and I caution you, based on what I know about you, if you have 100 points to spend on your efforts to reduce your health anxiety, there's nothing wrong with devoting some of the points towards some of the things you're mentioning here. Yeah. But there's a pattern that I think is not helpful to you, which is all 100 of your points get focused on health tips. Sure. Instead of dedicating what I think is 50% of the points that need to be spent on mind preparation. Fair, fair enough. On... Uh, behaviors once the anxiety kicks in in the beginning, what do I do? Is totally it benzos? Fair. Is it reaching out to people? Sure. Is it relaxation? Is it avoiding the internet? Is it really beating into my head I'm okay? Is it just sure. going to a primary care doctor and saying like, I'm having one of those anxiety things. I just need you to tell me I'm not dying. Am I dying? Absolutely. No, you're not dying. Is there a possibility you have other, some other thing? Probably not. <laughs> you know, Look, like, But this is included. For example... I've known for a long time that meditation can help with anxiety and it can help with better sleep and all these things. And maybe having an ongoing right? practice of right. that, not even. So that's you know. what I'm saying. Like the, those tips, like there are tips that are just not controversial unless you're in a fat shaming episode. And those tips, I want to be, I won't even use the word obsessed. I, I want to focus a little more on those tips. Things like don't use your phone before you go to bed. Yeah. Meditate. And breathe. And what else? And focus on your, on your, on your, like, you know, get that prescription for the medication for you when you need it. Uh, do some, some uh, mental work to uh, keep. What kind of mental work? Like, um, well, you tell me, like, what, what I can do. Beating into your head that you suffer from health anxiety sure. and that you focus on your body. This is what I do to myself. I'm beating into my head, like, very, you know, assertively that, Kirk, you focus on your body too much. You're listening for clues that don't help you. Right. You're, mis you're catastrophically blowing things out of proportion. Right. You need to not do that. It's not helpful because, uh, you know, there's this notion of like, well, I need to pay more attention because that will help me. You know, it'll stave off the danger if, I, if I'm hypervigilant about it. Um, it's actually the opposite is, is potentially okay. true. Um, when I do have a physical experience, I need to quickly remind myself that I'm okay and that I might not know what it is, but 99.9% .9 chance it's fine. Even if there is something wrong, right. uh, you know, maybe it's something that I develop over three years, but it could be easily treated or it's, you know, mild or, you know, but that you need to beat it into your head while you're right, not right. anxious so that when it happens, you have a mental practice of, you know, of a pattern of assumptions of belief, core belief systems. And now for, for you and your state right now, you might say, well, I know, I know all those things, but do you, does your gut know it? Right. That's what you're trying to get it to yep. is down to the gut level. Like I know in my gut that I'm, I'm okay. Everything's yeah. fine. The chances are low. Because my gut right now 
it 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 believes no no dude you're on the precipice <laughs> you know what i mean right 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 facebook patron lens says uh i totally have health anxiety i will find all the google pages supporting the illness i'm i'm convinced i have confirmation bias all the way it's a giant pain in the ass to think the worst about random symptoms anxiety rumination stress making myself feel even worse physically because I'm so stressed out. Uh, End of Facebook. Another Facebook, Matt, he says, yeah, I have health anxiety. However, with the help of Boost Bar and Lexapro, as well as as years of therapy, I'm now able to manage it to the point where it's hardly ever a daily problem. It tends to rear its ugly head whenever I'm going through a period of extreme stress, particularly when I feel I have too much on my plate. Maybe once a month or so. Years ago, it was paralyzing. Now, it's a minor annoyance. Mm. So we hear Matt having gone to therapy for years, taking Boost Bar, Lexapro has helped. Nice. Uh, All right, treatment. We'll end with this. So again, there's two models, CBT and interpersonal. So with CBT, and we've basically already talked about this, but I'll just kind of breeze through this. Um, CBT tends to focus on your attention. What are you spending your attention on? Okay. Wait, so what does CBT stand for again? Cognitive behavioral therapy. Oh, got it, got it. So cognitive meaning your thinking and behavior meaning essentially learning theory, uh, conditioning. Mm-hmm. So the cognitive part is what are you paying attention to and also what are you interpreting? So for me, I need to not pay attention to my heart as much. I need to not pay attention to my throat as much. Two, if I do notice a bodily sensation, I need to interpret it accurately, or at least in a helpful way, that isn't like I'm I'm about to have a heart attack or I'm about right. to have or I'm def I definitely have throat cancer and I'm definitely dying or whatever. The other part of this is exposure to uh, the symptom while not experiencing trauma. I won't go into detail on that, but um, so but just know that that's part of it. Another part of his emotional regulation, just the ability to notice your distress and be able mm. to lower it all the time is important to the CBT uh, direction. And also to address cognitive schemas and core beliefs that lead to uh, the, the propagation of health anxiety. That's what I was attempting to do with you is it, there's evidence in my conceptualization of you is that you have a core belief that the solution to one's health anxiety is to become very knowledgeable about health practices, and that will solve your problem. And you're not going to get anyone disagreeing with the uh, healthy nature of those tips and following them. But the core belief uh, ignores what I assume, what I think to be the larger core understanding reality of the way one thinks and the way one acts under stress is more important than the health tips that you have. Right. Um, and so that's what I was tempting to do was like, you know, so that's, that's in the CBT direction. That makes sense. Um, so uh, now meta-analyses show that CBT for health anxiety, although is, you know, evidence-based proven to be effective it's not as effective as other kinds of things it tends to be about 40 percent which is good for those 40 percent but 
not as high as what we'll see for other anxiety disorders or depression or something which you know might be in the 60-70% range. So there's something about CBT that's missing when mm. it comes to treating health anxiety, which I'll get into in a second. Uh, and this is harder than it looks. You know, uh, so a lot of people consider CBT to be, oh, it's pretty simple. You just change the way you think, your core beliefs, blah, blah. But I hope that you, you know, recognize this when I talk to Berto, it gets fucking complex because maybe Berto's right. Maybe he should be doing that. I don't know. Maybe his core beliefs are right. Well, they- and there's conflating factors. For example, three years ago when I went to the doctor, I didn't go to the doctor because I had just thought that I was dying. I just went for a routine physical. And as part of the routine physical, blood tests were ordered. But as part of those blood test results, my doctor, not me, said, all right, several things here you got to deal with. And that was me not being aware of my body, actually. Me not being aware of my choices, right? Yeah. Not so much like my body. Not being aware of my choices. But it's conflated because like when... Like when then I am anxious, then I might overdo my being aware of like, well, what are all those other things I learned about? So that's what makes this so complex. Right. So it's similar to like an eating disorder or something or, you know, other kinds of things like this. It's like, yeah, you know, it, there's, you're not wrong, but it's the, um, it's the, the ratio of attention that you're spending on it that you might be thinking you're actually helping yourself when in reality you're really not helping yourself. Right. And in some ways, you might be better off, uh, say you go for five years and you don't do a single test, you don't do a sing- you do whatever the fuck you want, and at the end of the time, you know, let's say you shaved off a year of your life, but boy, were you happier <laughs> with those five years than if you did the opposite, which is hypervigilant, monitoring yourself. You added another year to your life, but you're fucking miserable that entire time, <laughs> right. which might shave two years off your life because you're fucking miserable. Right. You know what I mean? So it, it's hard to know, but that's – and so that takes a very effective, smart CBT clinician right. to walk people through this. Let's explore it. Let's, you know, let's look at this. Let's connect it to your past. You know, yeah. What kind of voices are in your head that are you know, amplifying that, that thing? Are yeah. you are you are you sort of buying into the way your dad was, but it's just had a different version of that? You yeah. know what I mean? And let's kind of let's look at that. You know, the second model of treatment is the interpersonal model. This is typically more long term, and this is my words. This isn't the words that's from literature. It's just the way I use interpersonal. Essentially, you want to create corrective experiences in therapy um, and in the real world. So, for someone like me, it would be something like. Um, creating relationships where I feel um, safe, loved, secure, uh, cared for, paid attention to, um, warm, empathic, you know, those experiences, um, which happen in my life, one could always have more maybe, infuses in my bones and my neurons a sense of safety, a sense that I'm not alone. Right. A, a calming of the distressing hormones, a general belief and model of self that I'm okay, you're okay, and makes me, one, much, much less likely to be triggered to have health anxiety. 
Two, lowers my blood pressure, which right. helps me not to be triggered. Um, and three, if I do have any kind of health concern, for whatever reason, I, I don't freak out as yeah. much. Okay. And that's a corrective experience that you have to have ongoing that you know changes the way your neurons um, are. The other uh, interpersonal aspect, again, my words, is attachment awareness. And so just learning about that. Um, you know, I wonder about you, for example, mm-hmm. if you were more aware, and you've become more aware over the years, but if you were even more aware of your attachment needs on an hour-by-hour basis hmm. and were able to find ways to meet that attachment need, if, that's, if, if you were really hyper-focused on that, hmm. if your health anxiety would be less likely to occur, and when it did, it would be lessened. Interesting. You know, yeah. because when we have, you know, one way of seeing it is like if we if we were perfectly securely attached, which, you know, maybe we can, we can never reach the speed of light, but we can get close. <laughs> 99.9%. Is the, a thought runs through your mind. Of, and maybe, you know, I've experienced this before. Like when I'm blissed out, and I think, like, I'll even have this thought, like, I'll be blissed out, you know, in a relationship with my wife, uh, specifically. And I will have a thought like, you know what, God, if there is a God, take me now. Because... <laughs> this is this is it. This, this is, is yeah, the pinnacle. I'm ready, man. Like, uh, uh, if you take me now, I'm fine. Like, this is good. I've, so, I've had those... Um, actually, funny enough, I've had those sort of frequently... It usually happens when I'm watching something really good. Okay. Because <laughs> I'm like, oh, I got to see this. Yeah, I'm blissed out. Which and I so, was disappointed with the last Star Wars movie because yeah. in the previous ones, I had felt that. Like, oh. oh, I got to see this. Great. Yeah. And now you're like... If I go now, I'm okay. Although I want to see episode nine. Yeah. Ah. Oh. Yeah. So <laughs> it, it's an interesting way of thinking of just like, instead of focusing on how am I going to improve my health right. so I can save my life how can i have interpersonal attachment meaning and closeness so that when the thoughts enter my brain i'm like well, i don't give a fuck i, I can go yeah. I- or i'm not i have a baseline of safety in my life you know right. that's the idea is that the attachment insecurity that one infused into their bones from early life experiences chooses to manifest in all sorts of ways, including health anxiety, consciously we're like, I might have a heart attack, but deep down what you're really feeling is I'm alone and scared that no one is there for me. Right. The other one is a development of self is the interpersonal part. Again, my words. We have to develop, and I know a lot, and I've talked about this podcast before, because of our early child experiences might not help us with this, we have to develop what we call a sense of self, which is I know who I am. I know what my feelings are and I can recognize them and I can also soothe myself. Mm. I have the ability to know the inner vulnerable child and I have a part of me that can soothe that and say, you know what? You're going to be okay. Without those early childhood experiences internalized, you can have adults who don't have that. They don't really know what they feel. Right. And they definitely don't have the ability to soothe themselves. And so that's another part of that interpersonal model that long term that can help as a cure for health anxiety, Mm. which is evidence based. So that's what I think is missing when we look at CBT as, you know, 
only having a moderate rate of about 40% uh, success. Uh, I think it's, you need also interpersonal therapy to help. Okay. So let's conclude with a couple more stories from Reddit and Facebook. Uh, Reddit, health anxiety is possibly going to prevent me from going on my dream vacation. Oh, man. Yesterday, I was asked to go on a trip to Italy, which I have been dreaming of for years. Issue is, I'm terribly afraid of having a medical emergency, especially on a nine-hour flight over the Atlantic where you can't make a quick emergency landing. I know that statistically the chances are low, but I'm still crippled with anxiety. So chime in here. That's that illness anxiety disorder, which is ongoing anxiety, but with insight. Yeah. Like this person knows, like, I know it's I know it's weird. Yeah. But I'm still crippled with anxiety. That's high insight, but right. you know, you still have the disorder. By the way, I was actually sick for an eight hour flight from Miami to London in 2001 with the worst food poisoning I'd had throwing up and I mean like the whole time with shivers and crazy high fever for eight hours on a flight and I survived yeah well I can beat that I got um, the you know the classic Montezuma's revenge in Havana Uh, Cuba I remember you telling me this (laughs) which was all that and had to fly all the way back to Seattle, which was, I think like an 18 hour kind of process, oh. you know, cause you got stuck in the airport too, right? Right. Oh. Um, and, um, uh. like a little detail I'll tell people is I brought with me, um, other pants and underwear <laughs> to wear yeah, and plastic bags. If I had a, I figured I was going to have a diaper accident on the airplane because, anyway, I didn't. Oh, man. As soon as I got home, though, (laughs) kablammo. Kablammo. Uh, Going on, I'm also extremely afraid of fainting, and fainting is one of the most common medical emergencies on a flight. My fear of fainting. Apparently. My fear of fainting is really similar to fearing panic attacks, loss of control, feeling suddenly unwell, etc. Point is, I need to decide on this trip ASAP. But I'm so conflicted, I don't know what to do. Oh, wow. That is tough. So there's Okay, so here's top fan Lisa wrote on Facebook this pretty good description. I've, I've just had the most horrendous episode of health anxiety. Oh. I would check Dr. Google compulsively for reassurance and explanations of my very real symptoms, but of course, it never helped. All I could think about every second was that I was dying of the worst possible illness and would be leaving my three small children motherless. Aside from that, I don't suffer from depression, maybe a mild anxiety, but that's it. The health anxiety is a form of torture. I imagine it's something similar to OCD, where rationally you know you're probably okay, but your brain gets stuck in a loop, like a brain lock, where you can't think of anything else, and that you must be right, and all the doctors are wrong, or they have missed something. And because of my mind-body pain link is so strong, it's common to actually have very real pain and symptoms. Yeah. Uh, for me, what happened? What, what? No. For me, what helped me get out of it was talking to a therapist, finding a truly empathic doctor who helped me get the tests I needed to put my mind at ease, meditation, 
and the realization that these episodes have a pattern of happening when something leave, when somebody leaves me or I feel out of control in my life or in close relationships. In other words, my body-mind is finding a way of telling me that I'm in real danger. Getting the right test did, in fact, put my mind at ease, so it's not always the case that hypochondriacs continue to think something is wrong despite getting testing. For me, getting the right tests also made me feel heard and validated. Focusing on issues with my closest attachment figure, my partner, and also ensuring I maintain a good level of self-care and feelings of safety and pleasure throughout the day was also super helpful. What people with health anxiety feel is real pain and real symptoms, but perhaps how they process and read into that pain is heightened. I can't wait for the episode. (laughs) Well, wait no longer. It is now over. Top fan, Lisa. Final word, Bruno. Well, um, as always. After four hours. After two hours, as you predicted. As always, uh, I get a lot of personal value from these kinds of episodes. Um. Yeah, I'll definitely, I'll definitely uh, be thinking a lot about this one. So on the one hand, I want to say, and I think folks out there that struggle with this should, should take a moment to also be proud of progress and of things that you do well and things. Cause, uh, you know, I, I, I did manage to make improvements over the years, you know, first with just generalized anxiety and even with the health stuff, it's, for example, I no longer get appendicitis and hernias even when i've actually not had appendicitis and hernias but what i've actually had pretty painful like muscular things that any time before in my life i would have been like that's the that's the thing i no longer get that right so I, i've made some progress over the years um i think even when when i when i have had episodes like with the tapeworm um it doesn't devolve into paralysis, right? This last episode was per- particularly bad, and I don't know if it was because it was accompanied by actual symptoms that were physical or just because there were too many things conflated. But I'm going to be hopeful and keep working on my on my mind and then uh, also being, you know, somewhat wise about my, my health choices, like the drinking part, for example, because... Since the, the, the previous uh, write, writer in said that she noticed some cor- correlation between relationship things and uh, episodes, uh, I have noticed a relationship between alcohol and anxiety episodes. But other than that, uh, yeah, I think that a lot of mental work and self, what, do you, what you were saying of like self uh, affirmation that it's, that I am anxious and that. I shouldn't be so focused on every little feeling inside of my body. And that when I do feel certain things that they're not, they're not tragic, that they're just things that happen. And, um, yeah. So it makes me hopeful that there are uh, ways to keep improving. Yeah. And I like your final message, which is to recognize for yourself and for people out there and for me too, that it can feel particularly by a certain age, you're just like, God fucking damn, my brain. I mean, <laughs> Jesus Christ. And yet, look at all the work that I've done yeah. to uh, eliminate a lot of anxieties from my life. It can feel like an ever-running treadmill, but on one level, if I never worked on it, think how bad it would be. <laughs> Absolutely. And 
all the successes and all the happiness and all the non-anxious times um uh, that that's right. important for all of us to recognize that um you know how much work and how much success we've had and if we focus on that maybe that'll help us to be hopeful and also push us in the right direction absolutely like like just last thing is even in this last episode there were two moments that i particularly internally was proud of even though i did feel quite terribly when she said you might be having a cardiac event I was kind of proud because like I, I was still able to talk myself off the ledge from that one like from full freak out mode you know like I didn't like oh god okay take me now or call the ambulance like I just I kept it together I kept it together and then the second one was that uh, when I when I was getting the blood drawn I was able to just soothe myself enough to to have it happen, even though I came this close to, to pulling out because when she took the first one and it like, she only got one and then I saw all the other ones, I was like, I was about to say, you know what, I can't do this right now. And I started to say, and she's like, oh, am I not getting the right vein? And then I'm like, oh, no, no, you're fine. And then I went through with it and I, and I, and I was fine, you know, and, and so I was happy about those moments because it's like that I couldn't have handled that years prior in the same context. Cool. It's only because I have done some work. Yeah. And so if I, if I do more work I'll, and, and I have the right medication on hand when necessary, that I'll be stronger. Yeah, that's great. So I'm always curious as to people who listen to these whole goddamn episodes. I think I want to start a new thing. Let's have a code word at the end. And Go if, fefe. And if you <laughs> comment below, then we'll know you listen to the whole thing. But this episode <laughs> might post a while from now, and so it'll have to be so obvious that I won't forget that we've even done this. So what's a word or a phrase? That, that we won't forget was... Was a code word for having heard the whole thing. Okay. Uh, what about... Um, what was that thing? Two... Two-headed purple people leaders. What was that song? The two. We'll just say that two. Okay. Two-headed purple people eaters. And or, hey, I did listen to the whole thing. <laughs> you well, can that, cheat. That does it for that episode of Psychology in Seattle. Thanks for joining us out there. Please, please take care of yourself. You really deserve it, just like we do. We all deserve to not suffer from anxiety and do our best. Why, Berto? Because you deserve it, and you're okay. <laughs> it's We're all okay. <laughs> it's not a tapeworm. It's not a tapeworm. <laughs>